Welcome to Drunk, A Song of Ice and Fire, a special Valentine's edition of Whatcha Thinking About. I guess we can call it Whatcha Shipping About. I'm your host, Chloe, and I am here with poor Quentin, better known as Emmett Booth in the real, real life world. Uh, he's a great writer, has written many amazing theories that you've probably seen, uh, Eldritch Apocalypse with Euron, series on Davos and Theon and Quentin, and also is the handsome, bookish other half of Not A Cast, a uh, new podcast with Brendan B. Fish and poor Quentin. So uh, Emmett, say hello. Hello and hi. Thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to it greatly. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for joining us. It's true, I am the handsome bookish half of Not a Cast. The other half is the lumpen, ugly, intolerable Jeff Hartline, who just recently became a father yet again. So congratulations, I guess, to him for spawning. I don't feel nothing. Congratulations to his wife. More congratulations to Tina for for making it through and thinking of England. I'm very proud of her. (laughs) No, congrats to Jeff. He is a good dude. We like to uh, play jokingly that he is a awful person and he's not that bad he's just mostly bad he just plays one on tv and by tv <laughs> it's i mean twitter he's written it's, it's just, just the way, way he was raised exactly <laughs> he can't help it the poor boy uh, emmett tell everyone where they can find you on the internet and anything you're working on that you want to boast about you have the floor sir talk about myself chloe i would never dream of doing such a thing you can, uh, my most of my stuff is at poorquentin.tumblr.com. Uh, it's P O R Q U E N T Y N.tumblr.com. And I'm at poorquentin on Twitter. As Chloe mentioned, I've been writing a series of essays on a dance with dragons on the different POVs in that book. I wrote one on Tyrion and Davos and uh, Quentin, my favorite. And I'm doing one on Theon now, the next one of which will be up tomorrow. So you can look for that on both Tumblr and Twitter. Yeah, uh, not a cast. We do, we're trying to do weekly. Uh, chapter by chapter, reread through A Song of Ice and Fire. We've recently started. We've gone through the prologue to A Game of Thrones and Bran one and Catelyn one. And the uh, or one on Daenerys one will be released shortly once Jeff Gens gets over being a father. Because, God, selfish much, Jeff? Really? <laughs> think think about your priorities, man. <laughs> like not a cast, man. Like me. Everything is about I mean, me. I don't understand why people don't get this. <laughs> Editor's note, just to uh, put it out there. Theon Part 2 will be out on the 5th. Unfortunately, this will not be airing until the 14th, so it will be a thing of the past. So basically, everyone listening, please get on his ass to finish Part 3. Yes, by the, time you hear, by the time you hear this, I will already be procrastinating on the third part, so indeed. <laughs> Tis the way. Today, I kind of made Emmett get on with me so we could do some discussing for a special Valentine's edition of What You're Thinking About. Uh, in talking about relationships in A Song of Ice Fire, he agreed. Kicking and screaming, obviously. <laughs> I, am, I immediately regret this decision. <laughs> he was like, oh no, a chance to get drunk with you on Skype and talk about relationships in A Song of Ice and Fire. That doesn't sound like the best idea at all. He is my consort, so uh, I thought it would be a very fitting episode to get one of the most brilliant minds in the community on to uh, talk about some menial makeout shit. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> We're going to do this real interesting format-wise. We both came up with our top five relationships in A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, we're going to try to guess each other's top five, not necessarily in order, because I don't know where his heart truly lies besides, like, Euron or, like, the charred ashes of Quentin. 
That's my <laughs> that's my main ship. You're on with the charred ashes of Quentin. What those two crazy kids will get up together, you have no idea. No idea, Chloe. No one understands the but me. <laughs> Talk about a crack ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there will be tons of those. We're gonna discuss. I mean, not even just these, but uh, first things first. I mean, what are what what you drinking tonight, man? Well, what you drinking? As you know well, Chloe Ketchum, I'm trash. <laughs> True. I have zero taste in anything worthwhile. So when I think of what I have to drink for a sustained period of drinking, my mind goes to get a bunch of tiny bottles of whiskey and shove them in your <laughs> face. So that's what I did. I just bought six little bottles of Crown Royal honey whiskey, and I'm consuming them one by one, glorying <laughs> in my own filth. And what about you, Dave? What are you drinking? This is going to take a minute because I talked to you about it before we got on, but... uh. I had a day, I accidentally like didn't buy enough wine. I Cersei Lannistered too hard. I didn't, I drank too much wine is really actually what happened. I wasn't planning on drinking all I drank. Uh, so I only had a bottle and a half of wine left. And like, that sounds like a lot to the normal human. I kind of did a concoction then because I was like, what do I have in my house? And I had like maybe like an inch left of blue curacao and an inch of vodka left and i just like muddled frozen berries into blue curacao and vodka and then put it in the shaker and by shaker i mean an empty bottle of burnett's vodka <laughs> that i had laid around <laughs> and then put wine in with it and muddled it further and then i like now i'm pouring it and it's about like i'd say 40 percent that muddled wine and then like regular wine Sounds did you follow that cool. did you write that down I took yeah. notes. Will there be a test? Yes, there will be a test after after we guess each other's relationships. <laughs> the real test. Yeah, exactly. The drink test will just be a nice little after-dinner mint. It'll be like a, a palate cleanser. Precisely. I mean, I got to get these right, or you gotta, the whole relationship gets called into question. It means I don't yeah, understand you really... and your instincts about love and people. I'm on the line here, folks. I hope you appreciate that. Hundreds of people listening in are about to hear whether you will succeed and prosper in this relationship or you're going to fall to your demise. I'm going to try to grasp a star overreaching fell. It's going to be like Chris Pratt when he doesn't know that Neutral Milk Hotel was his, his wife's favorite band. It's going <laughs> to We're going to go full Parks and Rec here. We're screwed. Uh, who makes the best mac and cheese? Emmett! <laughs> the key is jalapenos. Right. Anyway. Mmm, mm, God, all up in that mac and cheese. I know. All right, you want to guess mine first, or you want me to go for yours first? All right, I'm going to guess your five, huh? Okay, okay. Okay. I also have two honorable mentions, and you don't have to guess those, but you'll get extra points if you do. On the Will I now? System. Oh, my. i going to crack my neck and get the Rocky music playing and the whole deal. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you didn't actually want it. To... Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I suspect, I just suspect, this is a guest that came to Fuck me in you, a dream. Em. Fuck you, Emmett. I hate you. I don't even like you that much. Howlin' in the Shara, perhaps. Perhaps <laughs> might be one of the five. It might be one of the five? Would you like to know? Or would you like to guess what number it is? I'm gonna guess it might be five or four or, three or one. I'm guessing it's one. I'm guessing it's number one on the list of five. One. Ah, oh, is it now? <laughs> And number two, let's see. I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Terminator and the Predator. Let's go with that one. That's number two. What the, what the, 
<laughs> oh, octave. Oh, wait, this is a different list. What? Another, no, never mind. Never mind. Different list. Different Google Doc. Move it aside. For the other four, well, I'm guessing Sansa and Sandor are on there. Somewhere high, somewhere perhaps number two or three. <clears throat> that high? <clears throat> They're number two. They're number two. Excellent. <laughs> this is That's unfair. Do you feel attacked? I feel really attacked already. Would uh, you like your money back for the relationship? I feel like I might surprise you. Yeah, I do want my money back. I might. Su- I'm not going to surprise you. You're going to guess all of these. You know me very well. Well, I'm not sure where the next one falls in the in the following three slots, but I know it's on there, and that's Asher and Carl. Yeah, it's on there. Is it number? Is it number four? Or is it number three? number three it's number three i'm on a roll okay i'd like an interruption because i do feel <laughs> yes. in my defense in your it's defense also like this is something we'll totally go into uh relationships in a song of ice and fire are all very toxic not mm-hmm. very many are pure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. i don't feel right shipping very many toxic things like i, I sansons as toxic as i feel like i can get in the fandoms most of mine are pure, so like they're kind of easy. I'm pretty easy, is what I'm saying to guess. Okay, so you. I would all. I would also posit that you wear them on your sleeve to a certain extent, my lady. Mostly to those three. Yeah, <laughs> that's the extent. That's true. That's fair. Okay, now the following two would be more difficult. Oh, you're like rolling the dice. You're like, here we go, big money, big money. I'm gonna hazard a guess that Cat and Ned are on there. Nope. Nope, didn't make it. Mm. Nope. Did you like how smug Damn. that was? I was like, nope. Getting the head shaken to the side and the eyebrows out. All right, that's perfectly fair. Hmm. John and Egret? No, actually, which I kind really? of like. I would have suspected. I thought about it, but also I didn't have time for porridge and beautiful wildling woman, so. Mm. <laughs> I mean, Jon Snow. Cold is nice. Yeah, cold porridge. Very cold porridge. Yes. I like it. I like it. I like it. Okay. Well, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Game changer. <laughs> I just wrecked your world, Booth. And then, well, now it opens up into a bunch of different possibilities, and I'm not sure which to elevate above other ones. Are you, do you, hmm, did Arya and Gendry make the cut? They got an honorable mention. Okay. And it's just, it distinctly says, with an asterisk, when they're older. I just want to put that out there. Absolutely. Let's clarify that immediately. Then there's hmm. also, FYI, does not say that by Sansan at me. I don't care anymore. <laughs> I don't even, I wish I could. You know what? I've spent so much time defending it and saying, well, when they're older and when they're healed, I don't care. I don't care when it happens. It could happen right now. It could happen 10 years from now. It could never happen. It's not going to happen probably officially, but I digress. And that's what it's like inside Chloe's head. At me. I will, with pleasure. Now, I know we're not hardcore Jamie Brienne people, but they are an excellent pair. Are they on your list? They are on my list because, okay, and we'll get, I'll get into why. We'll come back to this, obviously. We're going to come back, obviously, to Delvin's But they are. They are. Uh, They're number four. That's one that I was kind of surprised I put on there. I mean, I, like, chose these when I was drunk, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. So they're mostly accurate. I would say maybe... I would maybe tweak things now that I'm drunk a different night, but... That's fair. That's fair. Okay. Let me think now. We're down to one, folks. 
This is a yep. curveball. I don't think you're going to guess this right away, but I think you're going to be really like, I can't tell you how you're going to feel, but you're going to feel about okay. it. You're like, well, because yeah, well, we haven't had anything really particularly crack shippy so far. Hmm. Is it, is it Bruce and Walda? No, it's not. I thought about them too, though. Hmm. <laughs> She's trying to help me with her eyebrows again, folks. I fear I'm just not. I'm not picking it. Picking it up. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't help you probably. Mm. Hmm. You're on your last one. You're this so close. I Come know. on, dude. You got this. I'm sweating. I'm sweating and tugging at my collar. We haven't had a gay one yet either. Is it Theon and Rob? No, it's not Throb. <laughs> well, I knew it wasn't going to be Thramsey. It, it, no, it's not Thramsey either. Good call. <laughs> not for me. Too soft. Not... Too soft for that. Exactly. I'm, I'm too much of a dewy eggshell in the morning for that. Um, is it Stavos? Yeah. Yay. <laughs> uh, I knew you were going to be proud. I'm extremely <laughs> proud. I was like, the second he, like, he won't guess it at first. I'm like, I know he won't. But the second he hears it, he's going to be like, that's my baby. I'm very pleased. I'm very <laughs> satisfied. And then I have one other honorable mention. You want to try it? Uh, I don't think you'll get it. I might, have you to might. Have you, I might have to surrender to you on that one, babe. Okay. I know you're tired. You did a very good job of guessing the other ones. I'm very Yeah, impressed. I did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> Ten points for Slytherin. My other one is, uh, which this one was also, again, remember, these are how I did this drunk, is... The Night King and uh, his corpse queen, his corpse bride. I I would never would have guessed that, but I approve of me. I know. <laughs> uh, it reminds it's... me of like you and me, just because like I'm really pale, big bright blue eyes. And I fear nothing, and would probably sacrifice people in my giant cold castle. Yeah, I was thinking that too, actually. That sounds kind of hot. I ship it. All right. <laughs> all right, I gotta guess yours. Yeah, you do. Um. All right, we're gonna we're gonna nail these down real easy. Mm -hmm. uh, Carl and Asha. Mm hmm. Yep. 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 Three. Three? Number two. Number two. Mm -hmm. They're very sweet. They're very soft. John Con and Mooton. Ah, uh, that is my honorable mention right there. Ah, yes. Good for me. Very well I done. Know you're, that is uh, that is my favorite gay couple in the series for sure. Stavos. Actually, did not make my top five out of out of pure allegiance to their platonic relationship that I love so dearly. Aw, that's sweet. You just don't want to think about Stannis rawing Davos. <laughs> I think of Stannis as Melisandre sexual. So yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I get that. Like fire. Mm. That's mm. what he said. Anyways, okay, we'll talk about his grave digging later. Um. <laughs> Okay, so what about... All right, you got you got one. You got one. I'm not doing so hot. Um... Oh, oh, Cersei and Victarion. That is my number one. So we will delve... <laughs> she knows me well, folks, as we will delve into when we get to the wise. That is my glorious crack trash strip. It's the best thing in life. <laughs> you're the best human in the universe um mm -hmm. it's true it's okay true. i had a feeling i had a feeling i got the top two but i just feel like i barely even know you shit uh <laughs> who are you oh man i'm not i'm not doing so hot uh sansan 
Sorry. No, you defend it though. I've seen you. I no, I totally defend it. If it was just You're the first, if it was if it was just the first three books, I, it would have. But the lack, <gasps> of, when the five year gap died, a lot of my hope for it kind of withered because I'm like, he's probably not within the scope space of the series. He's probably not going to do it then because yeah, he's just arms the, or something. Exactly. No, but on the on the basis of their earlier conversations, it's it's definitely there. It just hasn't okay. hasn't held up for me in the same way. Plus, I wanted to yield space for you to talk about it because I know you can so eloquently. She'll never forgive me, folks. But anywho, got three I'm, more to guess. Can she do it? I've got three more. Uh, Gendria, Gendrianaria. Sorry, nope. I understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, it made it's my honorable for that reason. Each other up, but they're so young. I mean, just I think it's cute from Arya's perspective. There's no way you can really think about it from Gendry's perspective at this yeah, point. It doesn't creepy. kind of make me go, uh, because she's so small. Small, yeah. No, I but get the, that. Um, but the fact that she looks at his abs for like three hours is the most adorable thing ever. I do I'm love that. I'm just saying, they have their sisterly so nice. uh, sexual awakenings. Sansa about Sandor and Arya about Gendry. She's like, oh, abs. Sansa's like, oh, wow, yeah. that was a dream. It's the one thing their sisters have in common is they love their broad-shouldered men. Okay, Ned and Cat, you vanilla ass bitch. That is number three. Yes, this is true. <laughs> Did you read that sex scene in Catalan 2 and Agot? Yes, it's adorable. I love that mom and when dad you have get sex. To that, when you get to chapter two for Catalan on Nauticast, I am going to be there adding you. I'm just going to be like, oh, We're at Nauticast, at Nauticast. Hey, how about that sex scene at Nauticast? We're going to be gushing over it, I am sure. Mm, yes plain white missionary people um okay so okay so i got three wait what number is that is that four that was number three, three. Mm -hmm. you got two more them in order at least that's interesting damn um, straight knock them down like bowling pins two more okay are any of them pre-aswaf no good question okay they're all they're all modern i'm not an excellent backstory guy like you I'm, a, I'm much I'm oh, much more present day. Hey, well, you know what? That's good though. You're very well versed, so I wouldn't say that. You're you're versed. Even in the pre ASWAF, we hold good discussions. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, much I'm pretty much like Bran vis-a-vis -vis the Night of the Laughing Tree story when it comes to the backstory. Like other people tell me and I'm like, that's cool, but I, I want I want more like explosions. Yeah, which brings me to my next guess. I've really? been thinking about this all day. I've been thinking. I've been thinking about all this all day. Uh, Euron and getting his brain fried by Bran and burnt down by Danny. You ship that, right? That's. I I am I am erect for that possibility. Yes. Was there's it on no, your list? Sadly, no. There's no one I can functionally ship Euron with because he's just the ultimate alpha. I know Cersei Euron is a thing among people, especially uh -uh. since the show. But the, no, the problem is they both. They're too alpha. They both want to be in charge of everything all the time. They'd just be boasting to Doesn't each other. Work. There's no actual energy there at all. Like, that's it's not sexy. Cersei needs to be in charge, and Euron needs to be in charge. True. I mean, we see that from the Tyena chapter, you know, so. Absolutely. Yeah. No, Euron's, Euron's not letting himself be a mirror swamp anytime soon. No, no, I figure no. Definitely not. <laughs> Cersei can't really deal with that. Uh, okay, two more. I'm, 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 man, it's so difficult. You gotta follow uh, Arianne, 
and Damon Sand. Uh that's that's my that was my other honorable mention. They're they're ah! very hot together and very sweet. Yeah, I like that. Okay. I like that Damon is knows her well enough to call her on her bullshit, which no one else is willing to do. I think that's great. I love Ariane, but she needs that dynamic with someone who is no, not just I a subservient person. That's important in like any relationship, honestly. For number four, remember I follow you follow the more vanilla path that I represent. Okay, that's true. Uh, vanilla, vanilla, vanilla. Sam and Gilly. Oh, that would yeah, that's a good point. But no, no, that that's relationship oh. is terrible, and everyone should hate it. Just because of the titty milk. It's partially that. Oh, you saved me and now I'm fucking you kind of thing about it, in my opinion. Absolutely. Like, I like Sam's instincts in the first, when they first met in Clash of Kings, when he was trying to tell John, like, isn't it our oath to help people like this? Isn't that the point? Like, that was a good dynamic. But the relationship itself, like, there's no other reason he likes her besides that. Like, there's nothing about her personality that he seems to particularly be interested in. There's no real dynamic. It's kind of Stockholm-y. It's kind of Stockholm-y. It's just like they're kind of, which... Would be okay if it was framed that way. Mm-hmm. The way Danny and Drogo is clearly framed that way, but with Sam and Gilly, it's like it's spo- it's it feels like it's supposed to be true love ish, even though there's nothing really there. So no, not that. And also because of like how sheltered she is, you know, it's also like kind of like because eh, it's kind of yeah. like taking advantage in a way. Right, like when she says, "I am your wife now," like I can't like be awe to that, given what her her backstory with that word is. Like, like, she was a mole woman. Like, <sighs> Sorry. she was a literal uh, feudal society mole woman was what she was. And he, like, got her out of there. And now, like, she's his wife. Like, that's kind of a weird... Yeah, anyways, I digress. So now that we've depressed ourselves completely. <laughs> okay, so not Sam McGilly. Vanilla, though. I had John and Egret. Wait. John and Vale. That's my lady. She corrected herself <laughs> midway through and found it. That is number four, John Val. Very good. Uh, lonely, lovely, lethal. I get it. I get it. Uh, okay, I've got one more. You do. Vanilla still? Real vanilla? How vanilla are we talking here? This is the. This is not a particularly vanilla one, no. Okay. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well. Okay. I mean, the sex mm-hmm. might be, but the, the sex might be, but the very fact that the dynamic exists is not. Walda and Roos. That's it. Yep, number yep, five. Because of the noises mm. that she makes. It's so cute, but we'll get into that. <laughs> okay, so you had, from the top, we had number one was, oh my god, what, what were your ships again? Can we do this again? <laughs> Dark to swell, folks. It's uh, <laughs> our Cersei Victorian, Asha nice. Carl, Kat and Ned, John and Val, and Roos and Walda. Okay, right, right. All right, all right. I got that. I got it down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, co- it's coherent. There's a philosophy there, damn it. Damn, that sucked. Uh, that was that was hard, Emmett. That was a hard, that was a hard test we just did there. Well, I mean, you you know, you talk more openly about the relationships you're super invested in, and you write about them really well, and you theorize about them really well. And I'm my theories towards tends to this character's gonna like explode things in a really awesome way. So. Yeah, you like the mythical and the, you like all the Lovecraftian influence. I like more the, than a, I like all the stuff that reveals how many drugs George R. R. Martin took because George R. R. Martin very clearly took a lot of drugs. Yes, you, very you look, clearly. You look at the House of the Undying. It's like I wonder what you were doing all of college. <laughs> Definitely tripping balls. Mm-hmm. Like straight, just tripping. Yeah, I. 
I get that. I'm like, I'm always more invested in like character analysis in general and motivations, obviously. It's like my favorite. I like what makes them tick and why they do actions that they do. But I respect the uh, the stuff I don't really understand. Like stuff like that. Uh, LML, Lucifer means Lightbringer, always does all the mythical astronomy stuff. And I like respect it so much. But I sit there and half the time I'm like, no, nope, I'm dumb. Mm-mm. Oh, totally. Don't know what he- that meant. Oh, he notices things I never would have put together for sure before. And I love character arc and analysis stuff too. Um, yeah, I just I just love the Euron stuff, especially just because it came out of nowhere. Like it wasn't up until Feast, that kind of genre really wasn't in A Song of Ice and Fire, that kind of weird, spacey, cosmic horror stuff. And then all of a sudden, this dude just walks in with it. So that is always- Well, and that's a what's a cool test to it too, to how dynamically just different this book is, these- books are like from you know any other fantasy book any other fantastical series it's not nothing delves like this nothing gives you that broad spectrum like george gives us yeah it's the density and the range of it i mean look at how much you've been able to squeeze out of a shower just with the handful of mentions that you've been given given about her yep that's 11 mentions that's 11 mentions anyway (laughs) speaking of the lovely lady with the haunting slash laughing purple eyes depending on who was looking at her shall we get into why yeah, let's start so from dearly. honorable mentions and go back, though. All right. Let's, like, let's make them work for it. You know what okay. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll do an honorable. You do an honorable, I guess. You know, I, uh, I'll i start. You have two honorables, right? We mm-hmm. two, you said Ariane and what was the other honorable? Oh, I've forgotten it now. Oh, no. Well done, us. <laughs> Hey, it was a lot of work to get all those out. Let's be real. That was very difficult. I feel accomplished. Like, I'm sitting here, I'm like, man, I need, like, ten cigarettes. I don't even smoke cigarettes. <laughs> no, but what did I, oh, I didn't write, I didn't write the honorable mentions down, so now it's slipping my mind. Yikes. I'm still, like, anyway. Gendria, maybe? Did you no, say it was, Gendria? No. Yes, yes, it was Gendria and then Ariana and Sand. Yep. Oh, oh cool. Thank, thank God she's here, folks. That's perfect. I know. Perfect. Oh, you did this so well. Good job. So I guess let's start off with Gendria since we both uh, had Gendria on our lists. Uh, I didn't actually put a quote down for that, but I think my favorite Gendria moment is definitely when they are in Acorn Hall and she has the dress on and he makes fun of her and the song is playing Featherbed. It's just a cute little moment. It's adorable. And then they fight because that's the kid thing of like, I have a crush on you. And my only way to express it or be able to touch you is to punch you. And like, yeah. And he tears her sleeve off. And he's, and she says, she looks like a tree. And he says a nice tree, which is wonderfully clumsy. It's all he's got. It's, it is very sweet. And I do love that, you know, I love that Arya, there's the great irony as many people have pointed out that Arya makes fun of Sansa for falling in love with the quote unquote Baratheon prince. And then Arya falls in love with the actual son of Robert Baratheon. That's very, that's a nice, mm-hmm. clever bit of writing. I love, you know, all the Arya Sansa parallels and contrasts are always so interesting. Um, and it's, you know, Arya makes, Arya loses people so often that the connections she does makes, you know, burn through the page so fiercely. Because she, by the time you get to Storm, she's like, it's so sad she's expecting to lose everybody after a while. So that kind of affects all her relationships. And that stands very strong with Gendry. She like he, she keeps expecting him to to run off on her, and then eventually she runs off on him. Well, and that's a touch I really liked in the show. That scene when uh, Arya says to Gendry, "Like I could be your family, 
I could be a family. Like, oh, oh, that hurts, oh. man. That's sad shit. Because you're like, you want Arya to be happy, and you want, and the cool thing about that Baratheon parallel too is like, I think it would be a really great echo if they did get together in the end. Which my my head canon for that is that they rule from uh stones from old stones, and because Christopher the Fourth ruled with a hammer, with his. And you got the wolves in the riverlands, and yeah, that that works beautifully. Um, and I do like the the class dynamic and their relationship is interesting. I like that he forces her to recognize that, you know, as much as she wants to get home and be with her family, that it, the war looks differently from the small folk perspective. And he gets jealous of Edric Dane because they can relate as nobles. I like that stuff because a lot of the relationships in Song of Ice and Fire don't really deal with that explicitly. So that's interesting. But yeah, like, you know, the reason, like I said, I don't have it in my top five is it's mostly just cute from Arya's perspective. And the relationships I like best in fiction in general are the ones where both sides are really compelling and you like thinking about the relationship from both perspectives and they're kind of different, but they mesh. And thinking about the relationship from Gendry's perspective is like either a little weird or just like nothing in particular. It's mostly just kind of an Arya thing, which is why I would not have it in the top five, frankly. Which... Oh, well, spicy take, Mr. Booth. Um, which, to be fair, too, again, that's another Arya Sansa parallel. I mean, Arya's pretty much built up this crush in her head on uh, Gendry, you know. And, I mean, Sansa obviously takes it a little farther, as we'll get to later. Uh, but Arya builds this crush up in her head. And like you said, I think I'm sure that Gendry feels some sort of familial pull. You know, I'm sure... He feels like an endearment to her, like, oh, this kid's sister. And maybe when they're older, like, it would totally be a thing. I think that is a thing. But I think he, for now, it's more just platonic endearment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and we'll get into with when you get to Sansa and Sandor. There's just, you know, Sandor's backstory makes him unusually receptive to thinking about Sansa and what she's going through in a way that makes the relationship interesting. You know, um, whereas with Gendry and Arya, it's like, yeah, I don't, there's not that quite same kind of like, oh, there's a, you know, with Sans and Sandor, there's this weird philosophical connection, like where, you know, their their worldviews are interestingly aligned. And with Arya and Gendry, you don't really get that, you know? Yeah, I mean, because Sandor has a more fraternal role in both of their lives than where Gendry has kind of more of the brother role filled, basically. I mean, it's like if she was traveling with, you know, the boys from home. That's true. I mean, right down to the bastard role, it's almost... It, he's almost a replacement for he's almost a replacement for John as well as being a romantic yeah. interest exactly the way they sass each other and he looks after her and you know that's he's got the helmet John had the sword I mean there's a lot they're both bastards of course there's yeah, a lot of that John used to muss up my hair exactly so that's all in there to the extent that and I'm not the first person to point this out but I wonder if you know Martin originally had plans for John and Arya to get together I wonder if he I wonder if he has in part displaced that role onto Gendry in Arya's story. So, but we shall see. I would be interested about that. And I think that's also something that we'll get to in a bit as we move up and talk the Sansa stuff, because I, I mean, Sansa has so many suitors and different roles available that True. Uh, it would interest me to hear that. Yeah, they're cute though. They're cute kids. I love that. Like, I hope they do. I hope, I don't know, man. I hope they get together in the end. That'd be cool. I mean, no one else really gets her. They both deserve a little happiness, and it broke my heart when Gendry was calling after her as she ran off from the Brotherhood, mm -hmm. you know. That does get to me. 
<laughs> just makes you a little sad. It is. <laughs> I know. I'm really glad that you're doing this with me because I literally thought I'm like, oh, it's us. We're the sad people. So we'll just get real feelsy about relationships. By yeah, the end, I mean, we're going to be like arms around each other singing Jenny's song, you know, just. I named my blog after a kid whose whole life was finding out he's not the hero and nothing means anything and his friends died for nothing and now he's going to die horribly. Like, that's the that's the fun. You got to just be sad about things. You okay, Emmett? Never. You okay, buddy? You nope. Know? I'm never going to be okay. Anyway. What was your, your next honorable mention? Tell me your feelings about Ariane and Damon Sand. Yeah, I, just, I think these two were perfect, like, early 20s good relationship. Like, you know, a lot of the relationships we might talk about are like screwed up teenagers or older people who are kind of developing a larger relationship. But like, yeah, I love that. I, 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 have, I have a soft spot for like, you know, we were friends as teenagers, then we were enemies, then we were kind of romantically inclined. I like that they've kind of grown older together. I like, as I said, I love that he is able to lovingly, firmly point out when she is lying to herself, which is an important part of any relationship for sure. I love that. I love that, you know, she kind of still wants to sleep with him, but he's like, you know, that it hurts his feelings that he really wants something more out of her. And she knows that, but she still wants part of him around. And it's like, it's this very kind of subtle, sad tension and hasn't gotten over the top or dramatic in a way that wouldn't feel right. It's just, it feels, you know, like a lot of what people complained about the Dornish plot, and I think it's perfectly fair, is how a lot of the stuff with Ariane and Eris Oakhart felt very stilted and kind of hallmarky and just you know like you know it made sense for the characters eris okart was a weird virginal guy who had never thought about himself or sex or like he was just a babe in the woods and that was the point that that works and it functions well but like the actual writing of the relationship was for a lot of people just not particularly compelling in and of itself and for me ariana damon is like the counter example of that it's if you look at her released winds of winners chapters there's just a, a really sense of strong history. It's like the anti-Asha and Triss. Like Asha and Triss have the same thing of having been their weird, awkward, sexy makeout stages when they were teenagers at first exploring themselves. And, then and now she kinda, hates him. And now she hates him, right. It's the, obvi it's the op opposite of that because Triss refused to grow up and is still reliving that scene and Asha's moved on. And with Ariana Damon, they're both kind of trying to move forward. And they're, I, here's how I put it. I love that they are trying to find a space for each other in their lives, even though it's kind of awkward mm -hmm. and there's no inherent space for each other in their lives anymore. But they can't, they still kind of want to have a, they want to be part of each other still. And I think that's, that's very sweet. It's not developed enough for me to have it in my top five. I think as we mm -hmm. get more of the relation, I, I get the feeling from how the relationship works in her released Windsor Winners chapters that one of the primary sadnesses in Ariane's Winds of Winter tragedy that is going to develop is her relationship with Damon and how we're going to get the sense of how it could have been. And like, that's da, the da, thing da. she could have had. And we're going to get the sense of, yeah, that's what it could have been, but also like that she threw her life away to be with this prince and she's going to end up in flames when he wasn't even real. And Damon Sand was right there. Ooh, that's gross, George. But anyways, I digress. It's a, it's the, it's but, the parallel to John Con. I mean, like that's, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, 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 a, again, it's not, that's, that's mostly supposition. It's not developed enough to make my top five. Well, it's also really, like you're saying, it's one of the most real parts of Dorn, you know, people do complain it's a little fantastical, a little over the top, 
Um, and it's very grounded. It's very, it's like a real relationship. These are real problems that real people have. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it may, it, Ariana and Iris are very clearly a very plot driven relationship. It needs to happen for the queen making ceremony to occur. And, but Ariana Damon, yeah, it feels very lived in, which, you know, I get that for a lot of people, that was the problem with Dorne is that it felt very much like, hi, I'm George Martin. I'm, I'm doing the desert country. Here, here, I've read all these books where that's done, and I'm doing that part of it. It felt a little very kind of like... Yeah. George does eroticizing Dorne. Like, that's... Exactly. It feels kind of at a remove, like it's behind glass in a way that a lot of the other story feels very intimate, and like you're, mm -hmm. you're really there with the people. Dorne, as much as I love it, it feels... It, he feels like he's not quite comfortable doing this, this kind of story, or he's not... He's not quite at home here, and Ariana Damon helps ground it. Yeah, it's very grounding, and it's one of those slight human characteristics of the plot, and you get that here and there in Dorne, and I think that's kind of also what makes it sad about how it's going to end, because we all know that they're all going to die. I mean, they're all they're all going to die. They're yeah, that's the whole point later. of the Martells, is that they're a family they're that is die. tragically doomed okay. to die horribly over and over again. Like, look at Oberyn and Quentin, both of them. Well, there are two more, like, viscerally horrifying deaths in the series than Oberyn getting his face smashed in with thumbs and Quentin not even getting... Quentin not even getting exploded to death immediately with fire, but just enough breath to cover him that he slowly burns to death over three days. His Ugh. face was like the texture of petroleum jelly. Like... Yeah, his eyes were pools of pus. Oh, yeah, no, the, <laughs> that and that's the Martells. It's a very sad thing, but yeah, you need that grounding, and that's yeah. Like I said, I think Ariane and Damon are partially there to to make us sad that Ariane Martell is going to go. And I, I prediction as and again, not the first to make this prediction, but I would predict that she gets Damon Sand into the Kingsguard first after marrying Egan and getting with. I bet she part of how she captures that coalition is she gets a white cloak for Damon Sand, and they have like a torture little relationship going for a bit. Well, it's like the confusion of where do I put this relationship? How, Like you were saying, how do I make him fit into my life after my life has become so complicated? And it's the easiest option. I mean, look at everyone else. Uh, look at Kristen Cole. Look at Jamie and Cersei. Look at... Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's exactly how to deal when you become a queen is, oh, well, I can just put the dude that I want to fuck in the Kingsguard. It's true. Or look at, you know... I mean, look at uh, Rael and Bonifer Hasty. Sometimes you have to give that dude up, and then he's yep. just left carrying a torch for you forever. Um, but anyway, so um, yeah, that pretty much sums that one up. Yeah. Um, and interruption. I just realized we totally forgot another honorable mention that I'm gonna just name drop real quick. Uh, Dunk and Tansel too tall. Hello. Mm, mm, that's true. I can't believe I didn't even think about that. They can, they can look over a, a raging crowd of people and see each other across a market square, and their eyes would meet as if they would be alone together. Yep. And also he broke an asshole's yeah. fingers for her, so can't go wrong. Yeah, no, really romantic, and she gave him the shield for free, so. Oh, God, I really do hope they fucked. I mean, is not the major theme of the Dunkin' Egg stories, and I ask you as someone who's done a lot of content on the Dunkin' Egg stories, is not the major theme that everyone wants to fuck Dunk all the time. Yeah, and he's just fucking oblivious. And that's, yeah, that's the God. great thing. From 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 the Sworn Sword to uh, to Damon 2, 
Like he he doesn't realize, and it's so adorable. At some point, he figures it out because he fathers uh, the line of Hodor and Brienne and the Cleganes. But yeah, at first God, he's so oblivious. Dunk fucked as uh, Eliana, uh, who was on with the Dunkin' Egg for uh, Hedge Knight, mm-hmm. uh, as we discussed. Dunk fucked. Dude. I get that though. You know, like you wake up one day and you like realize, wow, I'm not ugly. I'm not a big lump of ugly uselessness. And then you just fuck. Like, I get it. That's that's life. Dunk fucked. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, quicker honorable mention. It won't be too much. I'm going to read the quote with it for sure. Uh, but my other honorable mention is uh, the Night's King and his corpse bride queen. It's uh, Bran 4 in Storm of Swords, which is... God, such a strong brand book. I, I, Eliana and I were just discussing the other day. We don't understand how people don't like brand chapters. Like you're stupid if you don't like. They're brand so chapters. good Sorry. and full of weird imagery and <laughs> nature stuff magic. and magic and history. Like Brandstorm of Swords chapters, they're all about like this, all about the past and like, the Laughing Tree and Queen Alisand visiting and the Night Fort. And I know we interrupted you, but it's true. You're correct. No, no, you're fine definitely interrupt me if you're going to talk about brand chapters like that is the only time you're allowed to interrupt me is if you want to talk about brand chapters i'm making a note of this ma'am <laughs> jot that down uh as the sun began to set the shadows of the towers lengthened and the wind blew harder setting gusts of dry dead leaves rattling through the yards the gathering gloom put bran in mind of another of old nan's stories the tale of night's king he had been the 13th man to lead the night's watch, she said, a warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, she would add, for all men must know fear. A woman was his downfall, a woman glimpsed from atop the wall with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice. And when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. It's true love, folks. You can't get better than that. So sexy. Would be great porn. That's true. I wonder if that's been done. Oh my god, I'm not it, jotting it down for like if, when we're poor. If not, we have to take care of that immediately. Yep. We're about to topple the market on Night King and a uh, corpse bride queen porn. Mm, my parents gonna finally be proud of me. <laughs> They'll be like Emmett, you banged a girl. We know you can do it, buddy. <laughs> Burn. Just kidding. Oh wait, those are the same thing in Quentin's plot. <sighs> you just had to. <laughs> I did. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to. Yeah. Hey, at least you're not the people who insist he's still alive. I want to burn them alive, ironically enough. <laughs> oh. Again. Burn. Yep. 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 Same thing. <laughs> Back to the Night's King porn. Um, oh. No, I'm just kidding. Back to the top five. <laughs> By all means. So, if you guys want to crowdfund that, if you're listening and you want to crowdfund that, it's not going to happen. Cough, wink, DM me, cough. www.nightsking.gofuckme.com You're very well versed in this, Emmett. Thanks for... Uh... <laughs> I live to serve. Anywho, which of our Anywho. top, which of our number five should we handle first? Well, I think we better get it out of the way now. Uh, Stavos, I feel like is important here. I uh, go for it. It's I, I really do like it more on a platonic level. I'm really I don't believe that Stannis is going to be rawing Davos like all day long. Okay, 
it is a very cool relationship, and it's just like Stannis doesn't love things except for like his burb. Oh, I should have asked if that was one of yours. I would have been wrong, but Proudwing and Stannis. I'm kind of disappointed, folks, that you did not guess Stannis Proudwing. I kind of feel like we have to have a discussion about this later on in privacy. Yeah, that'll be off the air for sure. About the fact that you didn't guess this. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't on your list, though, so I feel like it really isn't that But But you didn't know that. I mean, I do now. Mm, It's true. She's got me, folks. <laughs> Listen, she don't gaslight me about say. Stannis and Proudwig, okay? <laughs> I don't need your shit. Yes, ma'am. I just love the dynamic of Stannis and Davos, and I love when, I mean, obviously, we know what the best quote to portray this relationship is, which is, I am lowborn, Davos reminded him, an upjump smuggler. Your lords will never obey me. Then we will make new lords. <sighs> Whoa. It is one of my favorite scenes in any book ever. It's so perfect and pure and brings out the best in both of them. It's wonderful. And I would not object if they kissed at that moment. I I wanted at least a nice bro kiss. Like, then we will make new lords. Who says that? That is, like, sexual. Pretty much. It's the the sexiest revolution known to man. (sighs) God. Well, but then, but I'm surprised you didn't bring up the quote where, where... Davos offers Stannis his tongue. It is your t- it is I am your man, your grace, so it is your tongue to do with hey, as you please. Uh Walk you're the right one there. that brought the quote up, mm. not me. Mm. So I'd mm. like to just mm. you might not you might say you think it's platonic, but you're the one going mm about Davos's tongue being Stannis's right now, and I'm not. So I just want to make sure where we sit on this one. Are you are you Stavos, pro Stavos, or like no Stavos? Here, here's what I would say. It's known that George R. R. Martin is not a fan of fanfic, which I assume includes slash fic. However, I feel that's hypocritical for many reasons, one of which is that line. There's no way, dude, you could have possibly written that line and not known what people were going to do with it. It's that That's like, if I didn't know better, I would say that was the author deliberately trying to create gay slash fic between Stannis and Davos. Would you say that... Would you say George R. R. Martin is queer baiting us? I might. I might make that incendiary statement. I demand to be judged only on that statement henceforth. <laughs> I will. I'll jot that down. Go to uh, town on me, social media. No, I love the Stannis and Davos relationship more than almost anything in life. It's 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 really perfect. It brings the best out in both of them. Like I said, they have so much ideologically in common. Uh, and you know that that he makes that Stannis makes Davos's hand is such a wonderful compelling sweet generous thing but yeah for me it's, you know stannis stannis sexuality for me is melisandre focused above all else and for me that's how i've always framed the character so it's i've always it's always been something i've appreciated from the outside rather than taking part in myself but i was res- i respect it i give it a firm handshake and stare it right in the eye when i pass it in the street uh question for you then so just following on the stance and mel train so how i mean yes but like how do you th- how do you think he sees that like relationship in his mind with Melisandre? Is it more that he's fucking for power slash insurance over kingship and the Red Lord, or like that's why he bangs Melisandre? Or do you really think that he's actually like sexually attracted to her? Because I feel also like in the books he gets really annoyed with her a lot more often. My guess is that Stannis thought of himself as asexual before Melisandre came along, and that she is perhaps changing his definition thereof. 
I mean, Stannis has such a push and pull relationship with intimacy. He rejects it so consistently, yet there are so many moments in the text where he clearly wants it more than anything else with his brothers, with Davos, with John, with, you know, the people in general who he very clearly wants to love him, even though they refuse to. I've always thought that Melisandre got under Stannis' defenses by just immediately assuming an intimacy with him and that he that's almost like a drug for him that he hasn't been able to let go of. That this is someone who not only knows him but wants to know him and tells him he's worth knowing and worth talking to. And yes, you do matter. And I feel well, like and I feel like Stannis's sexual relationship with her is kind of inextricable from that. I absolutely agree with that at the end because it's interesting because it's like he wants all the intimacy, but doesn't he feels like he's wronged pretty much in every level of his life and he doesn't want to put the work in anymore to do it and melisandre just shows up and does it and obviously we know her motives are different also for the said sexcapades but it's interesting that like she just immediately acts familiar and he's just like okay well that's kind of what i wanted and i don't want to do the work for it so that works Pretty much. I mean, Stannis learned the lesson with Proudwing that if you put yourself out there and risk yourself, you're just going to get mocked and you're just going to get told you're wrong. So maybe the thing to do is wait till someone comes to you and just reserve what you got and keep it in yourself and just like sit there on your little rock. And, you know, Melisandre, you know, she, she, I think she recognized that immediately and was able to play him perfectly. And I think that's what changed the relationship for him. But I still think he's in den- He's obviously in huge denial about what that relationship means and why he's mm-hmm. doing it. So, you know, Stannis is, I think Stannis's relationship with Melisandre is, I don't want to say it's worse than actually burning people alive, but it is the, kind of the most wretched, petty part of his character. Cheating on his wife, and it's, he's doing it for reasons of self-gratification, ultimately. Um, and I think, I suspect that if you look at Martin's comments, he clearly is very fond of Stannis and considers him on a higher plane than the rest of the competing kings. So I've always thought that maybe one of the reasons Martin, unlike the show, kept the Stannis and Melisandre relationship off screen is because it does not make Stannis look good at all. And Martin, as a Stannis fan, was kind of like, you know, if I'm going to try to keep the readers invested in this guy in the least, maybe not show this part. And the show, which was never trying to get you to invest in Stannis, just show that scene because they didn't have that. They weren't trying to keep you on board with this guy at all. Yeah. I feel like maybe Martin also thought, Ooh, making him not likable now is not going to help the effect when he's really not likable later. Well, I mean, Martin's it's a very fine line. Martin's going with Stan because you can see clearly from clash of Kings and storm of swords forward. You can see him going, all right, I gotta, I'm leading this guy to this unbearably stomach churning moment. But I don't want this moment to just be like, oh, well, look at that asshole killing his daughter. I want people to have their heart in their throats. I want people to, I want people to be going, no, Stannis, don't do it. And like, people aren't going to be doing that if they don't give a shit about the guy at all. Like, you have to bring people in on why the guy is doing what he's doing and what he believes and what his best self possibly is. Otherwise, it's just, it's just a self fulfilling prophecy. It's just Stannis being mean because Stannis is mean, and there you go. I mean. He's got a little more on the line than that. And it's, yeah, for, for me, that's, again, that's why I love the Stannis and Davos relationship so clearly because Stannis looks to Davos to, like, it's not just that Davos brings the best out of Stannis, it's that Stannis keeps Davos around for exactly that reason. You can see it in Storm of Swords, Stannis brings Davos out of the cell and makes him his hand because, like, you get, you know who I am, right? You know the best part of me. 
I make my best decisions regarding you. What, whatever it is with you, Onion Knight, you seem to understand that I have some worth in me. So I'm going to keep you around for exactly that reason, because everything else in my life makes me feel worthless. So that, that again, that relationship is very sweet and wonderful that way. And the Stannis-Mel relationship, yeah, I think on the whole, it's there's a, there's a sexiness to it in that it's a, it's a guy who doesn't have sex kind of giving way to his animal instincts. And there's something sexual about that and interesting, but it's kind of petty and tawdry and sad. So that's not something I ship on the whole. Uh, honorable nod right there to uh, one of our followers, uh, Saren at Agenka. Yes. She, uh, her favorite crack ship with Stannis is uh, Stannis and Asha. And she's really hoping to see Stannis go ham on Asha in Tiwow. I don't know if it's going to happen, but for her sake, I hope she gets what she wants because she says that their sexual tension is very peak. I could see it for the sample chapters, but I could. I, the, the, I could see them. I could see them hate fucking to a certain extent, like yelling at each other with their noses like an inch apart until they start kissing savagely. Maybe. I mean, but, that's what uh, she's into. That's literally. That what is what, she wants. as we as we will get into. That is what she is into. So yeah, all right, I could see this. That's fair. It's fair. It's fair. Sounds uh, a good egg. She is she is a good egg. She's a good uh she's always listening and giving us her best takes, like how she wants to uh deep throat dunk for eight years or like get fisted by Victorian's flaming arm. So Yeah, that's um she's that's sweet. She's a good girl. She's <laughs> anyways, darling. Yes, uh, what is what? T- give me your number five, baby. Tell it to me. Bruce Bolton and Fat Walder Frey. Okay, okay. So <laughs> okay, okay. So let's let's all let's all put ourselves in the mindset once more of going our first time through Theon's third chapter in A Dance with Dragons. This is the chapter that's set at Barrowton. Uh, Bruce and Ramsay are arguing. The Freys have vanished from White Harbor, and then Theon sets up with Bruce on this horse ride to the. To, through town to meet Barbary Dustin. Now, Roose Bolton up to this point has been presented as one of the least humanized villains in the series. He is this weird, leechy ghost man with the white eyes who, like, is talking in a murmur and seems like a vampire. And, like, he's just, he's just, like, everyone points out that he's so much scarier than everyone else around him, but no one can quite say why. He's just inherently weird and off putting and scary. Like that's Bruce, that's that's he who he was in Clash of Kings when we first met him via Arya and Harrenhal. That's who he was when we met him again via Jamie when he ends up in Harrenhal. I mean, the fact that we first know Roos in Harrenhal is indicative of itself. Harrenhal is a super spooky, scary place full of ghosts, and Roos fits in just fine. And then we get this conversation with with Theon and Barrowton, where they're just talking about a bunch of different stuff, and then out of nowhere, Roos brings up his wife Walda Frey. And says, quote, I've become oddly fond of my fat little wife. The two before her never made a sound in bed, but this one squeals and shudders. I find that quite endearing. And everyone just went, what? What? What was that? It's great. It comes out of completely nowhere. It's not remotely set up with the character at all. It's never brought up again. It's just a, It's just unbe- unbelievably freaking adorable that this weird, soulless, evil vampire man has... Managed to find adorable stepdad love 
at some point in his life and he never expected it. And that fat Walter Frey is just like, you know what? I get off on Bruce Bolton. Judge me, at me, quote fat Walter Frey. <laughs> quote fat Walter Frey. Well, and like, it's, it is really weird because it's like a really weirdly belated ad of humanity. Like, uh, I mean, obviously we aren't going to believe that Ruth Bolton, who helped orchestrate the Red Wedding, you know, and like stuck the dagger in Rob, like we're not going to pretend he's like a human, obviously, like the guy with the weird eyeballs and like leeches himself and talks in a very low whispery voice. But, yeah, like, he's, an, he's a star, he's like a, he's a villain of like a weird old timey movie or a serial or a comic book or something. He's barely a person. But he definitely fucks. Apparently. Apparently. And he says he's he's become odd. What I love about it is he's become oddly fond. Like he wasn't expecting this relationship to mean anything to him. And now suddenly it means quite a, quite a deal to him. And that's just, it's well, yeah, so strange. Like, he comes to bed and he like gets in it. And it's just this like soft fleshy woman. And he's all sharp bones and corners and leeches and like blood and vampire-y. And like, he just like comes to bed and like bangs out this soft nice chick and he's like wow how did this happen this fat sweet lady and then he's just like that was nice i guess and then he goes to bed and he wakes up and he's like hmm. exactly like bruce bolton made a decision as a child like i don't feel feelings and that's just fine i'm gonna go ahead and just devour as much of the world as i can and now now out of nowhere after he's already achieved his point in the story ended life at the red wedding he's it's it's like he's he's found this new lease in life, and it's again it does it doesn't need to happen. Part of why I love it so much is that George Martin could have easily cut that out, or his editor could have cut that out. It has no impact on the plot. It doesn't come up ever again, but it, it just exists for itself, and you just you're turned to your head to decide and go, oh, that's so weird and so singular. Bruce could like understand or have an emotion, and that like. Like, for example, then he's just so blasé. He's like, oh, yeah, Waldo's pregnant, but, you know, Ramsey's going to kill that kid. And, I mean, she'll be sad. She'll be sad when he kills the next one, too. And he's, like, really blasé about it. And But he, like, immediately he acts like he knows. He's like, oh, yeah, my wife, Waldo, she's going to be really upset when her kid dies. But Humans work like that. That's the fun of Roost. It's like you have all these other villains in the story where, like, Martin wants you to understand their motivations. He's like, okay... You know, Tywin, like everyone, every motive, every villain has their primal scene that explains who they are. Tywin, it's his, mm -hmm. it's his dad being laughed at. That's, that explains pretty much everything Tywin does. Littlefinger, it's that duel with Brandon and looking at Cat as the blood flowed over his ribs. That explains everything he does. It doesn't justify, but exp explains who he is as a person. Nice Very. clarification. Oh, okay, totally. I'm not trying to say like, oh, it's okay, Tywin and Littlefinger, I get you. But like Martin wants to psychologically to understand this is what happened, and this is everything that came from that. Like Varys, mm -hmm. like the voice that spoke from the flames and, you know, being horribly treated. Like that explains exactly where he goes from. The Even Ramsay. When we see Roos and Ramsay interact, and we see Roos go, do what I say before I regret the day I raped your mother. It's like, oh, okay. That's why Ramsay is so fucked up about Bolton versus Snow. That yep. makes sense now. Roos... Is the, even hell Euron gets the scene where he talks about, and when I was a boy, I dreamt that I could fly, and then the maester said I couldn't. It's like ah, now I understand why you have this insane thirst and ambition inside of you. Roose is the one that gets nothing like that. There is nothing for Roose that explains the way that he is. Roose is just weird, 
And like you said, then he, as soon as he's talking about how much he likes Walt, he's like, yeah. And then Ramsey will kill my kids. I don't care. Whatever. It's like I, it, nothing about Roos's motivations or backstory really add up at all to a coherent person. And somehow that's okay because he's consistently entertaining and compelling in his own regard. And you just never know what he's going to do. And, and I just love that. And I, I love that. I love that the most inhuman bloodless character in the story is the one that ends up with something resembling a happy, sexy marriage. That's so perverse and so bizarre that I just, I just love it to death. Yeah, it's a very, uh, I don't want to call it soft because it's not soft. I, I mean, she's soft, Bruce mm-hmm. isn't, but it's interesting. It's definitely like a very, it's almost like, like obviously it's too little too late for humanization of Bruce Bolton, but it's kind of like, oh, okay, good for you, Bruce. It's just another layer of weird. It's weird. But Bruce Bolton's weird. Bruce Bolton's super weird, but I, tell me your thoughts on Jamie and Brienne. My number four, Jamie and Brienne. So I feel like, it's a very common ship, obviously, to like, because it's a very beautifully set up ship. Uh, George has definitely, I mean, he plays with the Beauty and the Beast dynamic, which we're going to get to as we get to uh, spot number two. We'll get to Sansan for me later. And it's a very beautiful dynamic. George actually, you know, worked on a he and Beast show. He loves Beauty and the Beast. It's like his thing. Uh, so Jamie Lannister, this soiled knight who, you know, has just fucked up and but also been seen and no one will listen to him about like how he actually isn't a bad dude uh and brienne of tarth who has had this whole life of just like not getting to be herself or being made uncomfortable for being herself you know being looked down upon for trying to go her own way in life by family by other people especially dudes uh been looked at as ugly her whole life and just these people like jamie's been looked at as ugly be a personality his whole life but beautiful on the outside and she's been looked at as like this sad sap of an ugly woman and just like this beautiful just like joining of characters and she makes him better and like he doesn't do shit for her but she makes she get he gives her a sword i guess but makes him better which is any girl okay listen let me break this down for you every girl can tell you we just want to fix shit Okay, we can't help the way we are. We want to fix you. When I look at big giant man babies like Sandor Clegane or Jamie Lannister, like I just want to kiss them on the head and say it's gonna be okay, big man baby. I'm gonna make things better for you, and I can't do that to them. Okay, it's very hard because I want to do that. So anyway, yes. <laughs> go ahead and fix me. Go ahead. <laughs> so my favorite. Uh, a lot of people like the I dreamed of you, like when he saves Brienne from the bear pit. Uh, people love the quote when she's like, but Sir Jamie, like, you were well away. Why did you come back? And he's like, I dreamed of you. And people are like, oh my god, that's so romantic. But I, an intellectual, (laughs) Yes, ma'am. I prefer a different quote, which is when she's not even involved in the quote, it's right before he saves her from the bear pit. And he goes up, you know, to Vargo and goes to the group and he says, I'll pay her bloody ransom. Gold, sapphires, whatever you want. Pull her out of there. And they go, you want her? Go get her. And the next line just says, so he did. And I'm sorry, but if that's not the most romantic-ass line in any story ever, you want her? Go get her. So he did. And then it like has him climbing in the bear pit and like taking action and mer- getting her out of there. Like, I'm sorry, that's any girl is just like sploosh, like wet. Like, that's the most beautiful. I'm I'm sorry, but he, he wants her. That's Jamie wants the beat. 
is what I'm saying. That was right there. That was like the most like holy shit they're in love moment I've ever seen in a story. So Amen, sister. I feel like it's a very mainstream ship. Everyone ships Jamie Brienne, but I mean, it is. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful echo. George, as I said, like, we know he loves Beauty and the Beast. We know he plays with those dynamics. We see it in Sansan. We see it in Jamie and Brienne. And it's just a beautiful kind of inverted idea with Jamie and Brienne of the beauty and the beast, you know? Perfectly said. I agree. I love that. I love that Jamie gets uh, Jamie bringing up the sense that they're the same person at different points in their lives. I love that Jamie looks at Brienne and thinks, "Okay, yeah, this is yeah, this is how I used to think about knighthood and about honor and about doing the right thing." And then Brienne starts to look at Jamie as because once Brienne has lost both Renly and Catelyn, she starts to get Jamie a little more and starts to look at him like, "Okay, this is." If I, if I lost a lot of bunch more people and they started to let me down and no one understood why, yeah, okay, I get I, I start to understand why I would think like this. And I, I love that that dynamic develops between them where they they realize that they're on the same spectrum instead of enemies. They're not the same thing, but they they, they start to realize how much they have in common. And that's it, it develops really well organically, I think. And I love how Brienne, I love how they think about each other in feast after they're separated. They spend storm together, of course, but then they, they're always constantly thinking about each other as, you know, what would Sir, you know, this Sir Hyle couldn't affect me as much as Sir Jamie did, or Jamie's comparing his own actions to Brienne, and that's just great. I love that instinctive, you know, they're they're not with each other, but they're always acting as if the other person is just over their shoulder, judging what they're about to do, so I better do it right, <laughs> or they're going to think, you know, that's great. That's just, that's good dramatic stuff. I love that. It's the same way that Theon, as much as he tells himself he hates the Starks and hates Ned Stark, and I was a prisoner, Theon is always comparing himself to Ned and always thinking, what would Ned Stark do? And, oh, Ned wouldn't approve of that. And it's like, yeah, because he was actually your dad, the closest thing you have to it. And, yeah, same deal with Jamie and Brienne. As much as Jamie tells himself, stupid, stubborn, ugly wench, I hate her so much. And as much as Brienne starts off hating Jamie more than anybody, they start to realize that ultimately ultimately Jamie wants to be like Brienne and Brienne realizes how easily she could end up like Jamie. And that dynamic is, is a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, and the language in which it's written, like you say, is so romantic. You want her to go and get it or just the way their duel is described with like the sword touching on her thigh. And they looked, she looked as if we were caught fucking instead of fighting and like, you know, all that stuff. It's just, it's, it's, the language around it is so romantic. You gotta love that. Absolutely. And I think that's also, especially the romantic language is like, it makes you think of, I mean, when you hold memories about people or about things, you remember little like reveries like that. You remember little like, oh, like they touched my face and they said this thing. And I'll remember that line of text for the rest of my life kind of thing. That kind of shebang like you think those kind of things so it's very real it's a very realistic touch and i think pretty sure like it's gonna end in tragedy i mean that's it is a song of ice and fire and i don't think that they're gonna be together obviously in the end which is sad uh because they both have affected the other so much and that's like what their plots are about i mean you just you know jamie especially with identity identity being such a big theme and jamie being the kingslayer and when he collapses in her arms and she yells the kingslayer and he yells you know my name's jamie and that's a huge 
like that moment you know that's a pivotal turning moment for both of their arcs especially Jamie's I mean that's the first time he's ever gotten to rehash all the trauma that he went through in doing the right thing he didn't tell Cersei he didn't tell Tyrion like he told this ultimately random person who he convinces himself he hates and he does it because he sees himself in her and because for some reason of all the people who hate him he she's the one he wants to prove wrong she's the one he wants Mm -hmm. to convince and that's she gets under his skin she gets under his skin and he gets under her skin that's yeah that's a great great thing they that they bring out each other but i agree for as far as the ending and tragedy goes i mean yeah i mean dunk did not you know retire to a nice cottage with tansel too tall for the rest of his days much as i would like that to happen dunk died in the fire being awesome i mean dunk died saving people from the fires and i mean obviously we could see an echo of that who knows um i know you and i have discussed this a couple times but like when Cersei's going to die you know it's just so like we don't know when it's going to happen it could happen she could you know retreat casterly and Jamie shows up then uh she you know I don't think it's going to be I don't think she'll be in King's Landing at all really interesting Dop John on Twitter actually was talking to me once and I don't personally agree but I think it's a really cool idea and how he got there thought wise but he was talking about how he would love for it to be like her caravan on the way back to Casterly Rock from King's Landing gets ambushed, like out in the Westerlands on her way back. And like, she's in the middle of a field. Like, no, she can't call upon like anything in her life. She can't call upon, you know, like excessive banners. She can't call upon her money. She can't call upon her beauty. She is just like in the middle of a fucking field and Jamie's horde meets up with her, you know? And like, that's how it goes. I don't think that'll happen, but it's a cool idea what you said, and that always sticks to me of stripping down her character and her luxuries. But Brienne is very much like a rebound for Jamie, and by rebound, I mean one of them's gonna die. <laughs> but as like the plot progresses with them too, with Jamie and Brienne, something interesting to note is like he starts thinking more kindly on her and starts complimenting certain parts of her. Like he notices in the end of Stormlight, he'll notice her eyes. He talks about how astonishingly blue and beautiful her eyes are. And like he starts noticing all these little things. And like even when he's apart from her in his POVs, he thinks about her, which like for Brienne to think about him, we're all like, we know. Okay, we get it you're wet for Sir Jamie and everyone makes fun of her for it. And she's like, no, I'm not. But like in our heads, we're like, yes, you are. Uh, And then like Jamie though, you know, when he thinks about it, that's a big deal because when you have an emotionally unresponsive man that you're into and you know, there's an inkling in there that he's into you too, but it's not coming to the brim or the surface, you know, like that's a big thing. That's like a, Oh, that's a sign. We got to analyze that girls. Like that's, that's how it works in real life. So, I mean, like, I understand Brienne is what I'm saying. Well, I think that's something George Martin does so well. It's something he does, I think, particularly well with both Jamie and Stannis to bring it back. Because he's like, you know, if I make this character restrained and reserved and instinctively assholeish 95% of the time as a defense mechanism, the 5% of the time they let someone in and they actually act emotionally vulnerable that's going to hit like a hurricane because of what a contrast it is and people are going to really respond to that and i think he nailed it with both those characters in very different ways but both in both cases you have someone a character designed to bring out of them you have davos designed to bring that out of stannis and you have brienne designed to bring that out of jamie i uh what i'm trying to tell you is that i think i'm a jamie brienne shipper now 
as of this conversation. Uh, I didn't realize how much I loved it until like talking about it, and I'm just sitting here and I'm like, oh, go get her. To for full disclosure, as 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 King Stannis's hand, I have it in me to hate Jamie Lannister. It's just it's just oh, I knew- no no like she deserves better and. Brienne is such a pure fucking soul. I mean, she's dunk, less simple, but she's dunk with a little more uh, education. And she is so good and pure and such a good girl. And you want good things for any boy that talks to her. I'm like, get away from Brienne of Tart. Like, you do not deserve to even breathe the same air as her. However, Jamie, like, and you and I have had this. We could go on for hours about his redemption arc. It's not a redemption arc. I'm glad. I'm glad he's learning better. He's still kind of working for the wrong people, doing a lot of the wrong things, not acknowledge. You know, it's like good like, for you. You didn't want like fuck your sister anymore. Like you decide, you know what? I'm gonna stop fucking my sister. That's great, but you're still like out in the Riverlands. Like, look, Adamir, this sucks. I have to come to you right now and do this. But here's the deal: because of my allegiance, you have to fucking listen to what I say. If you don't, I'm gonna make your life hell anyways. Like, he's still bullying. He's he's a lawyer for the mob. He's a nice, yeah. friendly face on top of a corrupt, illegitimate, blood-soaked organization. Like, yeah, I'm very glad that he punched Ryman Frey in the face. That's nice. You know what he was there to do? Hand the castle to his family. That's his job. Like, ultimately, the fact that he hit the dude is an insignificant yep. detail next to the functional reality of why he's there. He's there to hand out things to the guys who did the Red Wedding. That's his job. No, it's just like the stupid show Danny quote of, uh, I'm not gonna, whatever the wheel, I'm gonna break the wheel. And it's like, you oh, are the wheel, hate, bitch. Like, he is I the wheel. I hate that quote so much. Yeah. The most self-important, oh yeah, I'm making a statement. It's like something somebody would say in Independence Day. It's like, it's it's a meaningless line that should be on posters. That's It's literally that's, a line made for the YouTube trailer. Like That's, that's all that it is. Like, that's a lot... And that's a lot of the show at this point. I know it's a divergence, but I've always felt that about Cersei in the show at this point. Like, Cersei is sold by the marketing and the trailers as this crazy, evil, out of control. Enemies to our west. Enemies to the south. I'm going to kill them all. But if you actually watch the show, it's mostly Cersei just insisting over and over she's going to protect her children. And then once every seven episodes, she does something crazy. It's There's not much actually there. They just sell it as these one little moments. Anywho. Which is such utter bullshit because she at least has like sex in the books, you know what I mean? I'm just kidding. She has other shit too, like crazier shit, stupider shit. To be fair, I um, love I love Cersei in the books because it's just a uh, joke. It's so funny that this insane person is in charge and no one's stopping her, and she's just filling the government <laughs> with idiots. And it's just the funniest thing wait, about Cersei. Wait, hold on, hold on. Let me, babe. Can we back up for a second? Hold on. Did you just say that the best part about Cersei is that she's just like queen pretty much of everything and she's just like doing everything wrong and she's just filling the government with idiots and every day is a new fucking like scandal it's almost like that's reality and we reacted to that it's- in the feast for crows like this is just unrealistic how is cersei so dumb people in the fandom said that's not a this is just takes us so out of the story and now we're living that so maybe <laughs> let's revisit these it's chapters like, i'm waiting till next week to be like uh number 45 arms the faith like pretty much i mean that's the fun of cersei that she's wanted to be in charge her whole life and then she gets it and she has no idea what it is she wanted to do with it and it doesn't make her happy at all 
because she was chasing Tywin and Tywin was never happy. This whole family, man, the Lannisters are just so screwed They're up. They're all fucked. They're so fucked beyond, like, I mean, like, Tyrion might have a little good left to be able to get. Like, we've he could grasp. No, well, Tyrion's got a tiny little kernel of, like, I might save the world at the absolute end. Like, the last 0.5% of the story. Like, literally, the I think the, literally the last 10 pages of the book, Tyrion <laughs> does the right thing. Up until then, it's going to be a lot of crazy nonsense he does. And he's the best one they're they're greek tragic like of course you know they do nice things so you feel bad when they ultimately go down no i mean jamie is obviously doing better than he was in the first book when he was just a mustache twirling villain but he's but he's progressed to the point of he's he's gone from being a super villain to merely corrupt that's his progress like he's to be fair though like he's made the quickest fast like so he has made the most progress in the smallest amount of time that we've seen him on a screen like getting his thoughts compared to where Tyrion has fallen all of a sudden and he's kind of really dark you know what i mean so like yeah that's absolutely he's the true. good one but jamie is uh, god damn it now i'm contradicting myself i'm not trying to say that jamie's like on a redemption arc he's not but he's made the most progress like because I, I mean he pushed a fucking kid he pushed brandon stark out of a fucking tower in winterfell in his own grounds like you think the people are surprised the lannisters helped orchestrate the red wedding uh hello jamie pushed a kid within the first handful of chapters out of a tower in a game of thrones like that's uh, that's pretty bad that's like i don't really like kids a lot like sometimes like if they're not mine i don't have any thank god but like but you wouldn't push them out a window i understand this yeah i mean like yeah they suck but i wouldn't push them out a window for me like when i think of jamie the problem is there's this moment in the first book when he orders ned's men killed on the street and like martin that's describes it as his Jory. like he, his smile like flashes in the rain there's this very distinct image and like that got that burned into my brain of this dude yeah. and it's like that's maybe that's not fair but Martin did write it that way. And, you know, I, I get what his overall project with Jamie is. I appreciate it. But for me personally, he just it just was too much right away. And I hated him too strongly. And the, the journey back is always going to be a little filtered for me through that. Where I'm like, yeah, that's nice. But you, you, you still smiled as poor sweet Jory Cassell got a dagger shoved through his face. So... Uh kind of fuck you this whole and also this whole war is your fault so also kind of fuck you and then it makes me think about beth mm. all alone in winterfell and then ramsay comes and takes everyone and now she's maybe in the dungeons of the dreadfort like <sighs> we're sad people folks what are you gonna do with us <laughs> i didn't mean to get sad but now i'm thinking about beth castle and how she used to listen to sansa and aria and regard them as if they were the most important girls in the entire universe and those were the girls she should strive to be like oh and, and then theon put a noose around her neck because fuck yeah. theon i mean fuck my son yes i hate him oh, so I, much but i love him i'm writing the whole series now about how theon didn't deserve anything that's happening to him in ramsey's hands but he's still a fucking horrible human being <laughs> Baby, I think it was your turn. Number four. My number four would be John and Val. All right. All right. So. Lonely, lovely, lethal. <laughs> she summed it up, folks, but I will try to elucidate. Jon Snow starts out as a really boring character. Of can, all we, the can we wait? Wait. Can we call him Porridge? 
porridge we can snow? call him porridge porridge snow starts <laughs> off as a really boring breakfast food. <laughs> but then he gets the spice he needs and then he gets the spice he needs in the first book he is by far the least interesting point of view character George Martin clearly does not have a handle on him as a character yet. He's giving him sort of traits and, and qualities that do not show up in the later books. He's very stiffly written. His relationships are very forced. It feel a lot of his first book chapters feel like sub Tamora Pierce, as I've said before, in terms of coming of age stories and fantasy novels. It yeah, feels YA and not in a good way. And not because Martin is a bad writer, it's because I sincerely think he did not know what he was doing with Jon Snow yet, emotionally as a character, in the way that he very clearly did know what he was doing with Danny and Tyrion and Sansa as characters, or Catelyn. He clearly Which, like, I know what I'm doing with Catelyn immediately. But Johnny was like, I don't know who he is yet. And that's really interesting since he's like the savior and he's the child of like the people that made this possible. Like that's kind of like George, really? Like, he could have actually changed the parentage if he wanted. I don't think he would have, but he could have. One of the things I love about A Song of Ice and Fire in a weird way is that it keep Martin almost feels like he keeps getting ahead of himself with the story, which is why it's taking so long. He keeps setting up ideas and characters and traits and elements that he doesn't really fully understand yet and keeps mm -hmm. like, I'll figure this out. I'll work this out later. And part of me really loves that. That's like, there's a huge amount of risk in what he does. And you can tell with John that like, yeah, the backstory is all there, but I don't think he had a handle on him as a character until you get him beyond the wall, interacting with the wildlings. And that is where you start seeing, okay, here is where he's going with Jon Snow, the character. He's going to have Jon Snow be the one who understands this is not just an army. This is a whole people brought together. And that's the heart of Jon Snow's character is that he's the one who sees humanity in the wildlings and devotes himself to bringing that forward. And what I find really interesting about that in terms of shipping, the subject under discussion today, <laughs> is that Jon at first develops these really destructive, deceit-laden relationships with the wildlings, relationships that cannot last in the realms of both romance and uh, fatherhood, paternal relationships. And Jon is, of course always looking for a father figure to replace Ned Stark. That is the central drive of Jon Snow's character. It's holds from Tyrion to Benjen to Donal Noy to Maester Aemon to Lord Commander Mormont to Mance to Tormund to Stannis. Everybody, everyone Jon Snow interacts with is like, are you my dad? Can you give me the love that Ned Stark failed to give me? And that's, of course, ultimately leading to the revelation of Rhaegar as his actual biological father. And Jon develops one of his many deceitful, not quite the same relation, father relationships with Mance, and he develops this very dishonest relationship with Egret, a very hot, sexy, sweet relationship in many respects. That was his first real relationship. Quite literally a coming-of-age relationship, yes. But it's built on lies, ultimately. He's lying to Egret. Egret's like lying to Mance about why he's there and kind of forcing him into a sexual relationship. It's... I love it in a lot of ways. I love both of them, but it's not the healthiest relationship. It's not a long-term relationship, and they both know it. They both know it's going to end with one of them dead. That they're ultimately, like, Egret's not stupid. Egret knows that John is not genuinely with them. Egret knows that John is a spy. You can tell at several moments that Egret understands what's going on. But she really likes him, and she wants something out of this life, and she wants to believe this can work. And for me, like, ultimately, that's what, uh, for, a long lead into why I ship John and Val is because I think what you get ultimately in Dance with Dragons is John forging or trying to forge 
relationships that actually could work with the wildlings. And that's part of his arc as, as Lord Commander and trying to integrate with them with the realm. And he develops his father relationship with Tormund Giant Spain, which as well as being just freaking adorable because it's Tormund, but that is, is genuinely a working relationship and that they both clearly love each other and respect each other and they make it work. Like Mance, much as I love Mance, was never actually going to make this work because Mance could never bend the knee. And he could never actually bring the wildlings to the wall because his plan was, I'm going to take over part of the north, and the north is just going to be cool with that. That's just what's going to happen. And Tormund is the one who realized, you know, I really, there needs to be some give and take for this ever to work if we're going to stand together against the others. And that and that only happens because John and Tormund have a great relationship. And why I ship John and Val is because John and Val develop this really or kind of organic respect and sweetness for each other that ends up helping the overall project of integration and ends up helping John as Lord Commander and they can work together in the way that John and Egret, part of the sexiness I get is that it's doomed. I get that's why part of why one would ship it is because it's never going to work and there's a heart in your throat element to that. I do get it. But I ship John Vell because part of me is like, you know, no, no, we should want better for John. We should want better for the protagonist of this huge fantasy epic. We should want him to develop relationships that can last. And the, the John and Val, you know, they 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 do interact as better as human beings than John and Egret ultimately do. And, quote, Val kissed him lightly on the cheek. You have my thanks, Lord Snow, for the half-blind horse, the salt cod, the free air, for hope. And that's more than John and Egret ever really had, is hope. They had the moment with each other, as sexy as it was. They never had the long term. They never had the future for each other's peoples. They were doomed. Now, I like this because it's not. Now, tell me why I am vanilla and stupid and wrong, please. I eagerly await you. I respect that you eagerly await me. You eagerly await me. Ah! Oh, ah! oh, folks. Do you know that Chloe Ketchum does stand-up comedy? <laughs> I am pretty clever. Um, so I appreciate that you eagerly await me. Um, but you, no, I respect that. I do, I agree with a lot of things. Um, I was telling someone today that when I first started reading the books and when I first started watching the show, it's a big confession. Are you ready? No, no. You hate Jon Snow. Just say it. No, I don't hate him. I think he's boring in the first few books. Anyways, let's, that's not the point. <laughs> Listen, Porridge Snow is not the point right now. <laughs> I just feel like if you're the kid of the savior, like you're the savior kid of like the people that basically made this series happen, like shouldn't you be more interesting? Anyways, what I'm saying is no, I respect that. Um, I have two trains of thought. One, I thought a lot today about how John's choice of relationship is interesting and not quite, it's a rule of three. So like, let's, let's break this down right quick that Egret could slit a man's throat or kiss his neck or whatever. Val, lonely lovely lethal okay and then daenerys dragons so that's dragons a, are hard to beat but i'm just saying that's john bad boy snow with his mommy issues is over there like gonna fuck a crazy chick every time wildling bitch let's go wildling bitch let's go chick with some dragons that's close to wildling she has wildling horde she has dothraki like she's the leader that's he has a type okay first off True, um, and Danny also does have a type. Pretty boys. Dan Danny has the and anyone with a mustache to twirl. Dan Danny has a particular <laughs> thing for. 
kind of like Ariane with that the pretty boy trope how like she likes to fuck pretty boys Damon Sayon. I would know? love to see Danny and Ariane get drunk together and host a podcast I think they'd have a lot to talk about I'm into that I think we should uh petition George to make it happen I think he can make it done but no it's true I mean you know what what I think ultimately makes John an interesting character when you get to dance, and dance is really where John is an interesting character as Lord Commander, is he's got oh, yeah. the struggle between his job and his love for his family. And that comes through really strongly in that book, is every decision and every scene is all about, is John the Lord Commander or is John a Stark of Winterfell? And which does he care about? And they're clearly in direct conflict with each other. And, you know, that's that's what starts making him his it gives it a more it gives his emo-ness more gravity and more weight because both those things are really important. And I like that his his relationship with Val and Tormund kind of reflects that and ties into that, that you know, Stannis offers him Val if he will take Winterfell. And John ultimately turns that down. He's got that moment where he looks at Val in the window and says, I'm not the man to get you out of there. And I th- that was yeah. always such an interesting moment for me with John's character. It's like, it's him saying, I'm not going to be this particular kind of fantasy hero. Saving the princess in the tower is something that seems like I should do. It's kind of what my dad did, almost in reverse. But, like, it's it's the thing I'm rejecting. My job is going to be s- this very kind of political, unsatisfying you know, bit by bit job. That's what I believe in. And that means giving up, saving the princess and going home to the castle. And for me, that's an interesting moment for John. Like it's the moment where he kind of grows up a bit. And I do, I do like that dynamic. Whereas with John and Egret, as as important as it is, it feels to me ultimately rooted in John being a teenager. And John being a teenager is the least interesting thing about it. And oh, so to explain what I was going to say, I totally completely forgot until like just a second. Thankfully you reminded me uh egret was my favorite character when i first started the show uh i started when i started i started the show in 2011 2012 and in 20 it was 2011 and 2012 i started reading the books and i was like egret is the shit egret is the shit and i i do costuming uh you know not everyone else might know but i do costuming and i do cosplay and like uh, immediately everybody I knew was like do you watch Game of Thrones you should cosplay that Sansa chick and I was like I hate her she's so annoying I don't want to cosplay her anyone that knows me or my works knows I love Sansa now so this is a very funny story but <laughs> so I I have first time through we were just a bunch of people are discussing this on Twitter I didn't I was I mean you missed so much the first couple read-throughs of A Song of Ice and Fire and I didn't realize like right away like i didn't know eager was gonna die the first read through i didn't know and then i saw the episode and i read the book i read the book first and then i saw the episode and it was just horrible both times i was just like what this is real eager dies this is horse shit and i was so mad but i didn't understand sansa's characterization and i didn't like want to kind of i guess like i was very close-minded to it uh but egret for me was like she was my favorite i love my favorite thing is her speech uh with the kneelers only have to kneel that speech and like uh my land like my daughter my land like my etc like you know it was so it was just such a politically charged speech it really encompasses the whole entire idea of wildlings and of like what they live like and how their lifestyle is above the wall and like how they see below the wall and how southern politics look to them and how the southerners see them it was just such a big divide and it's also the other uh thing that i that's so interesting from what you were just saying with john rejecting these ideas and things of like i can't save the princess in the tower um he's not going to be like rhaegar rhaegar 
made mistakes. I think we don't know, obviously, the whole truth. We don't know. We know RLJ. We know Rhaegar and Lyanna definitely liked each other, loved each other, whatever. And they were together, whether it was lust, whether it really was love, whether it was for prophecy, something happened and she went with him and she died holding the flowers he left her in the tower in his in her hands you know like she crumbled those petals up and they fell from her palms as ned told her that he would take care of john and we know that like whether you believe show whether you've paid attention when you read the books ever if you, it, we know this we know what happened and john is taking the road less traveled not to robert frost it in a way that he he like you said he's not going to climb up there and save val that's not his fight his fight's going to come with the war for the dawn. Uh, his fight is going to come with making the world right. He's not going to put a girl in a tower to have a prophecy baby. Uh, John is not either of his dads. He, you know, says constantly, oh, he says Ned Stark stuff. He says, my Lord Father, this. Uh, I wonder if my Lord Father ever felt the way I feel, you know, lying next to Egret, you know, thinking Ned. But also Rhaegar. Rhaegar, the same thing. It's like all these aspersions you cast on Ned thinking that John's his bastard and then you realize oh shit no I'm casting these bitches on Rhaegar like it's an interesting thought process and I think John does his duty as we see Stannis respects him for that doing his duty gives him the nod when he does the Ed fetch me a block I think it's interesting that Ned like taught him his duty and John knows to res use respect do his duty and do the right thing and I think after he comes back from the dead, he's going to grapple with that a lot, and he's going to hit the dark side that Rhaegar probably saw a lot of. That was really great what you said about Ygritte. I think she's such a, such a great, fully fleshed out and foreign personality, uh, and she has such a huge impact on Jon. Um, but yeah, it's the, such the, the doomed romance is, is so part of them from the beginning, and my, my favorite scene in their whole relationship is when they sing the last of the giant song and he doesn't get it. And he's uh, like, oh, there, there are hundreds of them. And she's like, oh, hundreds. Sweet, sad moment, but it also gets at how doomed their relationship is. It's always surrounded by these images of things passing away and the conflict and what they're going through. And it's just, um, but you do get the sense that it's a learning experience for John on the whole. And then he's trying to not have you know ultimately not have the blind spots hopefully that Rhaegar had like you said I mean you know we obviously don't know the details about what Rhaegar's relationship with Lyanna was like but we do know what Rhaegar acted like when he got back and was just like you know, he was like to Jimmy you know what I really should have thought about this and had a council and replaced my dad and talked to people yeah that would have been smart too bad I just ran off with someone who didn't explain myself anywho <laughs> I don't want to like apologize for Rhaegar because I mean, either way, no matter what, as you know, it was shitty leaving Elia in King's Landing and her kid, their kids leaving his children. Shit, man. Okay. Leaving his kids. Like I used to, I don't want to say romanticize a lot, Liana and Rhaegar, but I mean, it's romanticized and you're supposed to romanticize it and like leaving his children and his wife, quote unquote, in King's Landing under his dad's reign, I get he didn't have much control over what happened there like that. Like, he left with Liana and whatever. However, his agreement with Elia about it, she had to have known, because otherwise there should have been a bigger stink. I mean, leaving that situation like that, and then going off to just go, like, 
fucking like finger blast this northern girl in a tower and then eventually give her a fucking baby and like have Jon Snow birth and like all this bullshit like I just like I don't want to like feel sorry for him but at the same time it is a young man's politics in a way you know what I mean like he didn't have like like you just how you said it like and framed it with the him talking to Jamie like oh when I come back we'll we'll figure this all out like he was thinking in the present tense and he was thinking like I have to make this prophecy happen and here's the present tense and he was not thinking long term where Jamie was like what the fuck and like anyone else in the kingdom is like what the fuck and like John is gonna I don't think he's gonna be presented with the opportunity to leave a woman that he's married to with kids for the War of the Dawn, I think John's big battle is going to be the War of the Dawn. You know, in the end, he's going to be Azora High, that kind of figure, and Danny might also be. And I just don't think he's going to have the opportunity to leave. No, that's my thing with Rhaegar. I don't. He's not Rhaegar's not evil. He's not like his dad, but he just he was he had tunnel okay. vision, and he didn't. He had the ultimate mindset, where it's like it's it's as I'm saving the world, so everything's going to be fine because that's the thing that I'm doing. And like, like when he goes to Willem Darien and says, "Like I, I require sword and arms." It seems I must be a warrior. Like that's 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 for me. That's the most revealing Rhaegar moment because it's just like he thinks it's just like a series of dominoes, and they're all just gonna fall, and it's just gonna be fine. And that's how he acts. And he's almost like Blood Raven. Blood Raven reminds me of him in that way, where they just have that attitude, where it's just like, "Yeah, I'm doing the right thing." So it's just what? Stop bugging me with your criticisms, you weird little mortals. And he doesn't. He's doing the best he can. He's, he's literally the, doing the best he can. He's doing the best he can, but like, like, dude, like, it's gone. You should have more to say to Jamie than just, "I meant to call a council before." Everything has gone so wrong on your watch, my friend. I mean, I'm angry with Rigo in large part because he had the potential to be so much better than he is. Because he was clearly a smart guy who wanted to save humanity. He had the best possible intentions. He he read. He did the research. He got the sword. He had the song. He has all the tropes you need to be the guy to save the world. And then he just vanished into history. And now he's just a ghost. And that's what's so fascinating to me about Rhaegar. It's like he's on, on paper. He's the protagonist of the whole thing, right? I guess, yeah. If you just if you just lay down in fantasy genre terms, he's the silver-haired prince with a tragic backstory the with the song and the princess who was going to save the world with it. He saw the comet... And now he's just he's just backstory. And that's one of the things I love about A Song of Ice and Fire. It says, this guy, you know, he, he is at best a motivation for the real important people. And and I do love what you said about John. Like, you know, he has to gradually develop a better model and, you know, move towards saving the world, hopefully as a collaboration, hopefully with, with Danny and other people, instead of this, I'm going to go it alone and not explain to anyone what I'm doing, even though that is kind of how John acts in dance. So that's something he does have to get over. Cause as Lord commander, John is a little Rhaegar in his terms of, yeah, I know the right thing. So shut up. I don't have to explain myself to you, <laughs> which, you know, part of me loves that I'm a Stannis fan and that's very Stannis as well, but it's not, it's not the most effective way to do things. Absolutely not. I mean, and we're not going to get Stannis on the Iron Throne. I mean, so that obviously says we know Stannis is flawed in his ways. And we know John's flawed in his ways. We know all these characters. Again, George writes great, great characters. We all know that. But it's interesting to see how it all plays out like that. 
Yeah, and he writes characters that are not quite where they're supposed to be, which is some of the fun. Like, a lot of our ships are ones that are never going to happen or are inherently doomed, because that's the power uh, of them. That's interesting. Mine aren't. I'm looking at mine right now. All of yours all are, of canon, are canon. They're except <laughs> for Chloe's, guys, except for all the ones that are canon, you see. And that's the appeal of Stannis for me. Like, Stannis is, you see him go storm and dance, like, you know, Stannis should really be in the north. He should be in the Night's Watch. That's where he makes the most sense. He's angry and grim and celibate and likes being under siege and just sitting there and looking at stuff like that. He makes sense. He shouldn't be king. Although I, I prefer him to most kings for a lot of reasons, but he, he does not make any sense on the Iron Throne sitting in small council meetings. Where he should not be. For him. No, he should be at the end of the world with a bunch of losers eating shitty food. And just waiting for something to happen. He'd be great at that. That that was that was what he did at Storm's End. That's what he did better than anyone else. Was sit under siege with no food. Stannis That's, would be into geocaching. Pretty much. Like Stannis is. I mean, he's just. He's he's just basic. <laughs> he's just basically your uncle. He's just basically Ron Swanson. That's just what Stannis is. He's just, I love. That you just were like Stannis's, Stannis, Stannis's, and you got really worked up and you couldn't come up with a phrase for what Stannis is, but like I knew your emotion, but you were just like, ah, Stannis, Stannis, and I'm just like, yes, dear. I'm very, yes. well, because that's the ultimate Stannis moment is when his men just stream out of nowhere at the wall, just screaming his name and nothing else. That's you it's, right now. It's just what we do. I love the one true king so dearly. Anywho. Do you want to talk about Asha and Carl together? Since I think so. You're number three and mine number two. That makes perfect sense. So this is just basically us, if we're just going to be honest about it. Yeah. Um, Asha and Carl, it's it's us. It's. I think we know the reason it was on our lists. In fact, like, do I feel guilty because it was two for you and mine was three? Am I in trouble? I, mean, I wasn't going to bring it up, but now that you say it... <laughs> Listen, listen, Sandor Clegane, okay? Like, you know, you know how I am, and you love that about me. That's true, I do love that about you. No, it's true. I mean, all we have of Asha and Carl is literally one chapter, basically. Ugh. So there's that. Ugh, but it's such a good... Can I read the passage thing? I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to get the hell out of your way, lady. <laughs> Ooh, that's what I thought. Wow, he's even... Are we role-playing right now? Is this Asha and Carl modern AU role-play? What is happening? Okay. Um, oh, I'm just throwing things. That's good. That so, sounds like Asha. Is it an axe? It's my phone, but it's close, I guess. I mean, It's the equivalent of an axe. <laughs> yeah, Asha and Carl. Uh, wow, what a ship. The first time I read it, before I even like read this passage, like it's just such like a... It's an innocence lost thing, and we get it through the symbolism of fruit, which uh, that's obviously something we know and talk about here and there. Uh, sure, the peaches, that's a big thing for George Martin. Yeah, with both yeah, Renly uh, and this, it's clearly a huge thing for him. Oh, yeah, more than that. Look at the peach, the actual uh, brothel. Look at, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. there's a certain innocence lost, too. There's so much peach symbolism. There's so much fruit symbolism. Uh, we get the Persephone pomegranate symbolism when it comes to Sansa. The we lemon cakes, absolutely. Lemon, lemons in general, lemons being innocence and home in a better time for Danny and Sansa. And then there's the blood oranges and Dorne, which have their own connotations, uh, of course. Uh, it's almost uh, like these so books are really well written, Chloe. That's almost as though that's what we're saying. Shut up, Emmett. I love these books so much. 
Uh. Uh. Anyway. So, my favorite Asha Carl moment is the memory. It had still been summer then. Robert sat the Iron Throne. Balin brooded on the sea stone chair, and the Seven Kingdoms were at peace. Asha sailed the Black Wind down the coast, trading. They called it Fair Isle and Lannisport, and a score of smaller ports before reaching the arbor, where the peaches were always huge and sweet. You see, she said, the first time she held one against Carl's cheek. When she made him try a bite, the juice ran down his chin and she had to kiss it clean. What? You can't not ship this. Who doesn't ship Asha? You know who doesn't ship Asha and Carl? Our friend Saren, Agenka. Yeah, she doesn't ship Asha. She hates it. And I'm just like, how can you? People ship Christopher and Asha, but they don't ship Asha and Carl. And first off, I also want to say... When I talk about the ship, it's Asha and Carl. It's not Carl and Asha because that's feminism. Hashtag feminism. Hashtag woke. Asha's pretty clearly the dominant partner in the relationship, but it's such a sweet thing. And like you said, yeah, that scene is so... Uh, they spent the night devouring peaches and each other. That's like... It's pure. That's a pure... Man, that's a ship. Asha and Carl are a ship, Emmett. They are such a ship. That's like... Oh boy, his peach fuzz and her description. Like, you don't remember that description. You don't remember that detail. You don't get that HD, like, pixelized detail of his little, like, peach fuzz. You don't think about that 10 years later. I don't think about boys 10 years ago, their peach fuzz now. I don't think about that. Okay? Like, that's a big, like, she loves him. They love each other and they're never going to be together. And that's what's horrible. He's probably going to die. She's got, someone's going to die. It's a song about, <laughs> it's, Someone's gonna die. Chloe is determined to be sad about this, but yeah, I mean, it's and it's framed in the relation in the narrative as such because all these memories are happening in the wayward bride in a chapter where Asha's super depressed because she lost the king's moon. She thinks Theon's being horrible. I mean, she knows Theon's being horribly tortured, and like Carl is her little oasis. It's her little bubble that she has, and she, he calls her his sweet queen. She's like, no, I'll never be queen of anything. And it's like it's the one thing she still has. And she can't even fully have him because he's too lowborn to marry, and it's just, it's it's just very melancholy. I'm making a really ugly face. You can see it, but no one else can. And that's fine. That's how I prefer it, honestly. It's, like when I make ugly faces, I'm like, Emmett can see it. No one else. But I assure you, people, it's art. But it's, <laughs> and it's just also because it's. I mean, one of the things I love about Asha as a character, and she's one of my favorite characters in the story, is that when she's presented from the outside, when you see her through Theon's POV, she's the most brash, brazen, charismatic, in-control person on the planet, and it's awesome. And then when you get her POV, it reveals that she's actually unsure a lot of the time, and she doesn't always know what to do, and she's got these doubts that she's harboring and these contradictions. And that's, I mean, much as I love Asha from the outside and what a badass she is, it's like, I love that too, that she's revealed as having these like, it's not all lightning and badassery inside her brain 24-7. A lot of the time she's tired and confused and sad and just wants to be in bed with this guy she unexpectedly really, really is really attached to. And she never expected to be attached to. And that's nice. It's, again, it's such an organic little relationship. And it's just something she wants to hold on to when she's losing everything else. Plus, plus they have a super sexy, like... Uh, a role play kickoff to their sex scene where he grabs her and is throwing her down in the bed. And it's, 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 it's pretty sexy. That's my commentary on that. Yeah. I agree with the above. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I yeah. They and it just represents like it's sadder than that. <laughs> Let me just make it sadder for a second. It's sadder than that because like obviously we know in the Song of Ice and Fire world, it's not always easy peasy, peach breezy. Like you don't just get to like raid up the aisles and eat peaches and have sex on barges and shit. That's not always how it goes. Sadly. Sometimes sometimes that's life. Otherwise, you can have it in real life. But I mean, like in a song of ice and fire, that's not how it goes. So just thinking about like we know she's not gonna marry Carl. What if she did? That'd be cool. What if like in the end, Asha and Carl like somehow are alive and they run away together and they're just off on adventures and together. That would be great. They oh, have like heck. A- they have like a Manson Bravos and a Manson Karth and a Manson oh. Old Town. Yeah, and they're just traveling the seas together, making Until out and eating old. fruit. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh heck! Mm-hmm. I'm barges just laying around. Do you want a houseboat, Chloe? Is that what this is really about? Do you want to like just go on a barge sure. across the nations forever? Right, let's go hang let's go hang out on rivers let's go let's go pull up and down the mississippi like it's the roin i'm in i'm so in <laughs> mm. Mm. darling i hate to bring it up but i guess you should talk about cat and ned i was about to say let me bring you back down to earth off our mutual loving <laughs> i crowd. was having too good of a time you got me for a second there i was real you said some stuff well, one of like, the, one of the things I do love about Catelyn's character and about that first book is that one of the things that uh, mom and dad in fantasy don't do is fuck. That's yeah. something that's generally kept off stage or not alluded to at all. Or you're being raised by your uncle and aunt Owen and Baru, and they don't have children. So for all you know, Luke Skywalker, Owen and Baru have never fucked. That just doesn't come up. That's just not a part of the story. And something I do love immediately about A Song of Ice and Fire Establish is that no, Cat and Ned fuck is a thing. They do it for fun. They do it to get out of, get through emotions. They do it to become closer. They True. do it as part of an intimate relationship. And I like that as part of mom and dad and fantasy. That It's not the most adventurous or unique sexual relationship in and of itself, but it is framed within the narrative is for me a different kind of thing within the genre. And I do like... I like the cat Ned dynamic because I don't know. She has a great mix of of pushing him. Of the push and pull is what I love about Catelyn and all her relationships with mm-hmm. Ned and with Rob and with just with everyone she deals with. She's always like trying to get what she wants and then always trying to understand what it is they want. And she's always trying like it's always that negotiation with her, and that's what makes her an interesting character. And I like her relationship with Ned and that like in her that yeah, that scene in her bedchamber. She's trying he's going through these emotional turmoils and she's trying to be rational and logistical and say, okay, this is what our house needs. This is what Robert's offering. I love that she points out to him, no, if you say no, he's gonna think you're his enemy and he's gonna grow against you. And I, I she's trying to reach out to him in the place that he is and deliver what she he needs to know. And I, it's a very it's a relationship that's clearly built up over time and there's a strategy to it. And it's, it's not the marriage that was supposed to happen. And I kind of love that about it, that it's developed organically, even though, as she says, there, the Catalan softened and to see his pain. Eddard Stark had married her in Brandon's place as custom decreed, but the shadow of his dead brother still lay between them, as did the other, the shadow of the woman he would not name. 
the woman who had borne him his bastard son. And I love that they've developed this relationship in the shadow of these relationships they feel like they should have had. And that this is the accidental secondary cast off marriage and that they've still managed to make something out of it. I, I like his sweet and I like their last goodbye King's Landing when they hug each other and no one else has to like it. But that's why I think it's cute. I like that you're saying no one else has to like it, but you're literally talking about me. Only slightly. I'm only slightly <laughs> subtweeting you here, babe. <laughs> okay. I love that to quote a popular song, Ned and Catalin found love in a hopeless place. I do. I love that. <laughs> she swears it, folks. I'm glad you can see my face. Emmett can see my face right now, and my face is not saying that I love that. It's saying, like, oh, she's going to say some shit soon, and I'm not going to like it. That's what he thinks my face is saying, folks. Uh, I'm ready for it. Okay, are you braced? Are you like... Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I talked about this today on my Tumblr. It's something I'm very passionate about, so I'm ready. I'm, like, in it to win it for this conversation. Um, Yes. I love that Catalan and Ned did find a way to build their love. They built their love. It was hard. It wasn't easy love. And that's what's so important because sometimes love isn't easy. Sometimes love isn't the breeze blowing and you just love each other. Okay. Like that's not always what love is. Sometimes love is arguments and petty passive aggressive moments and whatever. But love for Catalan and Ned was very hard built. She entered the North is this woman with a child on her hip. That was her claim to the North. Her claim, her ticket to entry to the gates of Winterfell was she had the blood of Winterfell at her hip. She had Rob Stark burst out of her badge at her hip. And Ned didn't, he came home at the same time to meet her with another kid on his hip that wasn't hers. And that undercuts her entire, that's all she had to get in at a time when, at a time when Southerners were looked at as the devil because they burnt the Lord of Winterfell and the second Lord of Winterfell after he had died. I mean, Brandon and Rickard had just died at the hands of Southerners at pyromancers in the capital at Aerys putting a barbed chain around Brandon's neck. I mean, uh, at she entered just being this lone fish in a world of wolves, entered the wolves' den and Ned shows up at the same time with a kid that isn't hers. And it's just the most undercutting personal moment for Kat. And then she asks him, hey, what's up with this kid? Can we just talk about it? I want to talk about it. I want to make this a healthy situation. And he shoves it to the side. And he says, oh, it's interesting. You want to talk about it, but never ask me about it ever again. Uh, we're not going to talk about it. It wasn't a Chardain. And so she lives her entire life. Until Ned dies, she lives thinking there's this woman, this woman that's like on a slight tier above me that has more information than I do. He wasn't the one I was meant to marry. I was meant to marry his older brother, but there's this woman that had his heart and I don't have as that heart. I have what's left of that heart. I don't have that heart anymore. And he goes rage ice cold on her and says, don't ever talk to me about her again. And she's just left in the dark to think, there's a son that's not mine. I didn't birth this kid and he showed up and my husband will never talk to me about it. And now we have to go on with the rest of our lives forever like this. 
And so she tells herself, I love him. I love him. I love him. I love the children he's birthed me. This is the best life. I hate that fucking kid, Jon Snow. I hate his guts. But I love Ned, besides his bastard son that he got on some other woman. That wasn't me. I love Ned Stark. And I love the kids I've had with him, but not Jon Snow. And like that's her whole life until she dies. That sucks, dude. I'm sorry. Like, you can think, yeah, they had a great relationship when they were happy together, but like, I mean, she was left to waste away in her brain of how, like, she went batshit because, like, she she got resurrected and went crazy because all this bullshit has happened to her. And the phrase were awful, obviously, as we know. But, I mean, like, it wasn't just the phrase that made her like this in the afterlife. Like, the afterlife was her a cold-hearted, stone-hearted woman, like, a shell of a being because, like, of a communication error. Because Ned couldn't tell her because Liana made him promise and he just deign to think maybe there's no way to communicate oh totally i agree i mean the fact that they're the shouldn't have happened secondary cast off marriage has huge costs and consequences for them as well as uh the organic earned part of it because like you say you said really well that catalan feels this woman who has access to more information than she does that was closer to his heart and she's only getting what's left and that he feels that way by this whole life that like, you know, Brandon was supposed to have the Lordship of Winterfell and you and be hand to the king in front of the queens. And none of this is what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and I, I don't, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, I suppose what I love most is the contradiction between how for Ned and Kat's children, like their marriage is the foundation, right? It's the rock. Mm-hmm. It's what everything is based off of. It's what they think of when they think of love and home. And then you look at Ned and Cat's on you real Ned and Cat's eyes, you realize what a fragile, flickering flame this is that wasn't supposed to happen and has these huge wounds in it. And I suppose I love it's not, I don't you're absolutely right that it there's this huge wound in it and that, that reverberates poorly on Ned, especially. But I love that yeah, that the main parents in a genre fiction story are not this sentimentalized, idealized relationship that is easy to understand and compartmentalize that it's a very real relationship that has these horrible wounds and this kind of earned joy that they've managed to find with each other. I love that it was, it was the, it was a part of a story that could very easily have been taken for granted and not fleshed out at all. And I love that it was given the fleshed out amount. It was given. Absolutely. No, I agree. Um, I didn't mean to get intense there. I'm sorry. Did I just No, like, you were intense in the absolute go. right direction. That was good. Good. It just like it sucks to think about, you know, because it's like I think again, not to backtrack to where we were earlier, but I feel like a song of ice and fire doesn't have very many healthy ships. It doesn't and that Ned and Catalan is one of their healthiest ships says a lot, honestly, about True. the state of the the a song of ice and fire union we have going on of like of unions, I should say. The A Song of Ice and State of the A Song of Ice and Fire Unions. There aren't a lot of healthier relationships than Ned and Cat. And I mean they're healthy to the most extent they could be and to protect their family. And that's what mattered in the immediate. And we all know Ned wasn't the best practitioning politician. And we know Catalan had great politics, but she didn't have she couldn't rise above her station on him. I mean, she could only extend herself as much as she could. We saw what she did with Tyrion. She tried, but that was not a best choice. And I'm not saying that was a smart choice at all. But I mean, just like, you know, she's a woman in the story very much. So women are marginalized and limited. And Catelyn is 
someone who has been, you know, she relied on this system to nourish her, her entire life. She was told by her father that if she behaved, if she said yes, if she married who he said she should marry for swords and for regime, like, I mean, if she did that, things would be okay. That's what she was told. And she did. And then that very system that she subscribed to that she put her whole life on ended up murdering her. I mean, that's, and that's a bigger overall story. Yeah. That very system murdered her. I've had practice today. I'm very on this topic, by the way. Good call. Now then we have arrived at one of the major Song of Ice and Fire ships again. Your number two choice. Oh no. Oh no. Do I have to talk about it? Oh heck. She says like Sansa about this ship. Look, here's the deal is I only saved two quotes for this. Uh, only two out loud. The restraint, it was really hard. The genuine restraint is astonishing here, folks. I was expecting at least five or six. I was snuggling <laughs> back into my pillows being like, all right, I better get comfortable for this particular portion of the podcast. <laughs> Ten it's gonna take a later. while. Exactly. Okay. What how have you managed to boil it down to two quotes? I'm interested. Okay. The two quotes that I chose it should be three. I didn't pull the third. I can pull it right now. Honestly, I should pull it right now. Um it immediately went up, everybody. Listen. That that took <laughs> no that staff. took that took zero time at all. So, Sansa Stark yeah. deserves the universe, whether it's That's whoever she wants to start. This is the best place to start, is that I ship Sansa Stark and her happiness. But more specifically than Sansa Stark and her happiness, I ship Sansa Stark and Sandor Clegane, because that is what brings her happiness. That's my thesis statement of this entire piece, and now we are going to continue on. Please proceed. Um, so Sansa Stark and Sandra Clegane, my favorite, a couple, I have three favorite quotes. I'm going to read you one right now, and then I will read you more later. <laughs> I have three, as I said. The silence went on and on. So long, she began to grow afraid once more, but she was afraid for him now, not for herself. She found his massive shoulder with her hand. He was no true knight she whispered to him. The hound threw back his head and roared. Sansa stumbled back away from him, but he caught her arm. No, he growled at her. No, little bird. He was no true. Please, please. Uh, I'm having a lot of, like, emotional turmoil right now because I I just remembered that it's the best ship in the world, and it's canon. So that's a a thing. Give her a few seconds, folks. Let her experience this. It's just hitting her uh, in waves. Sansa Stark, a young girl from the north, a sheltered area to begin with, and then a sheltered girl, a sheltered girl that her dad kept her behind the gates of Winterfell until she was old enough to go anywhere at the king's request. Uh, she, He kept her behind the gates of Winterfell from his PTSD. He couldn't risk losing his daughters these beautiful girls, these beautiful, beautiful girls that he was so lucky to even have after all of the fucking war and just the loss and the pain and suffering that Ned Stark has endured. And the king comes to visit and the king changes his life. The king says, come to King's Landing, be my hand. And Ned does. 
he knows he has to and he goes and he takes his daughters with him Sansa especially bright beautiful young Sansa the gorgeous always good always excelling in school Mm -hmm. always smart and beautiful and uh talented as Arya says and playing instruments and you know verse and all these different things just so you know the perfect girl the perfect princess of Winterfell type of thing she comes to the capital thinking of songs of chivalry and maidens and knights and people doing the right thing and learns that's not what it's about and Sandor Clegane helps to teach her that he who learned it so young uh who is suffering from survivors trauma and guilt suffering from knowing his sister his little sister his younger sister was murdered probably because of his brother but we haven't gotten the pure confirmation we've gotten hints and his dad was murdered and just suffering abuse at the hands of his older brother who pushes fucking face into the brazier and has burnt his face sloughed off his skin with flame uh, just for playing with a toy of his, you know, as young kids, um, all this trauma that Sansa Stark meets the truest knight who refuses to be called a knight, and they save each other, and it's it's a big mood. Like, I'm not going to yell big mood right now, but I'm like, big mood, Sansa Stark and Sandor Clegane are in love because he's a true knight, even though he won't admit it, and she's the ladies in the song, so. So there you have it, folks. <laughs> And listen, they don't, they're not old enough right now for each other. Like he's, he's 30. It's, it's 300 AC. He's 30. She's 14. That's weird. I get that. They don't have to fuck right now, but like he showed up as a fraternal figure for Sansa Stark. He showed up, Sansa's dad's dead. He's like, wow, your dad didn't teach you shit politically. You need some help. I'm going to tell you shit. It's going to sound real. It's because it is real. It's going to sound real. And you're just gonna have to learn, sister. And he tells her, but then, like, she falls in love with him. And she also has, like, some sexual awakening dreams about him and a feast for crows. She also thinks he kissed her. He didn't kiss her. He just, like, held a knife to her neck. But, I mean, like, that's good enough. I think that, too. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, I no, I love that moment when he when she says he was no true knight to him. Because it's, ah! he's, like, he's convinced ah! himself that, you know, because the the powers that be sanctified gregor that means everything is bullshit and there's no point in trying to uphold any kind of values and what she says is like being a knight means more than the sir in front of your name it, it, it means what you do and what you are and what you try to be and that's something he never no one ever told him before and that she the seemingly naive the little girl who was just her head in the clouds, she manages to suddenly accidentally pierce to the most insightful core of the whole thing. And that's just great. How can you not love that? I ask of you. Okay, also, and then there's like other things like when he starts to sexually notice Sansa Stark and he's like, you're turning into a young woman. And she's like tall with tits. And he's like, what the fuck? And he's tall with no tits. So that's cool. Um, And... <laughs> Uh, another quote, if we're going to go there, obviously one of the best ship quotes for Sansan is the Night of the Blackwater. And Emmett, let me tell you, I, yes. I wasn't, when I first, fuck, how do I word this without embarrassing myself the most? Um, you can't, so just first, go ahead. 
thanks i agree i really agree i'm like i already dug this hole guess i gotta go through with it uh-huh. uh, you dug this grave <laughs> i'm gonna kiss your stupid face god um <laughs> gosh uh yeah when i first like jumped on first off the first read through i didn't understand grave digger and didn't realize it was sandor let's not talk about it we'll move on Damn, second read through okay. i got it yeah uh right. but guess that's okay that's cool i guess <laughs> the whole sansan fandom like we know that the night of the black water so i don't read fanfic i mean i don't do fanfic it's just not for me i don't have time i, uh... I keep trying it's mostly bad is the problem <laughs> i agree some, some of it is amazing but some yeah. is good some is bad and it's like i hit the bad and i'm just not i'm not motivated to continue know what i mean it's not yeah there's, there's a lot of chaff to get through the wheat unfortunately but one time i read this fanfic and it was where sansa went with sandor after the blackwater at the battle of the blackwater he said come with me no one would hurt you again or i'd kill them and she went with him and they went over to like tyrosh eventually he ended up having to like fight in a trial by combat for her because like the like naturally mayor, duke whatever whatever feudal name the dude had i don't remember it's been a couple years the mayor uh, duke of tyros yes it's canon whatever that dude he wanted to like fuck sansa and she's like no and sandor's like oh no you know like they were not having it and uh <laughs> so like he ended up defeating him in a trial of combat but anyways i digress uh he had this like proposal scene he was all like i want to give you birds and pupplings and blah 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 and take back your home and i'm like this is the sweetest thing i've ever read uh so they have this scene at the battle of blackwater where he comes to her chambers and she enters her chambers and he's there in the corner in the dark drunk alone like a man baby just like crouched in the corner just like oh you're in your room now where i am haha and i'm like yes that's where anyways <laughs> like the fire has traumatized him and brought him back to his childhood moment and he's uh, he's and he goes to the girl he's trying to save he's trying the one girl who's always treated him like an equal and the one girl that he would want to save and he goes there he goes to his place of home he goes where it feels like home Pretty much, yeah. I only know who's lost. Me, he said. Yeah, that puts the whole Blackwater in perspective. I mean, you've watched the Blackwater unfold with Davos's sons going up in flames and Tyrion going down and the bridge of ships. And I mean, that's and that's the grand irony of the Blackwaters. It ends with like Dantos Holler going, oh, to be a knight. And like this, this complete fake representation of hope, but at the core of it, what you have is this presentation of Sandor saying, I only know who's lost. And that's me, the man who fears fire more than anything else. And that's like Sansa's whole entire plot is she gets that real taste of real and then she's stuck by lies and arbor gold. Ha <laughs> uh, ha. Where have I heard time. that phrase before? Never. But my favorite, so one of the big quotes in the fandom, uh, I could keep you safe, he rasped. They're all afraid of me. No one would hurt you again or I'd kill them. He yanked her closer and for a moment she thought he meant to kiss her. He was too strong to kiss. Pfft, that's wrong. He was too strong to fight. She closed her eyes, wanting it to be over, but nothing happened. Still can't bear to look, can you? 
she heard him say. He gave her arm a hard wrench, pulling her around, shoving her down onto the bed. I'll have that song, Florine and Jonquil, you said. His dagger was out, poised at her throat. Sing, little bird, sing for your little life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm. And like, so like a lot of people don't understand how that could be shippy, but like I do. Well, it's, I mean, it's her relationship to songs and romance and that whole chivalric arc of being brought to the absolute forefront because here is a quote unquote knight trying to quote unquote take her away, but it's this crazy, drunk, traumatized, scary man who is awakening feelings in her that are not the same that are supposed to be in the chivalric romance. So it's this weird interplay of the tropes and their antithesis kind of colliding in the same frame. She's, she's singing about the fake story while the real story is unfolding in front of her, involving her. And that's just the power of Sansa's character is the collision between those, between the, the stories and the reality. And like, it's not about, it's not just about ha ha stories are fake. It's about how they intersect and interweave. And that's interesting. And that's what makes the relationship interesting, I think. I agree. No, I do agree. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm just having lots of emotions in that song. I know. You can just, I know, I know, I know. It's an intense show. Um, you know what you were getting into picking this one. It's your own fault for putting it on the list. No, for sure. And we've talked about how George has, A, written on a Beauty and the Beast show, uh, B loves beating the beast. It's one of his favorite things. He loves the dynamic. He loves the trope. Uh, he actually, it's very interesting. George wrote the TV version episode of Blackwater, as we know. He uh, got to do the writing on that episode and like work with the scenes and get things exactly where he wanted them. Mm -hmm. uh, if there's any an episode where I'm just like, you want to watch an adaptational episode from the books to show that's like it, that's a show episode where I respect it. Blackwater. Blackwater is my favorite episode of all time. Uh, yep, season mine two, too. Episode nine. Absolutely. Is it really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's always been number Big one. nerd. It's the best one. Sandor and Sansa have like this, I mean, as we know, like I said earlier, he has the survivor's guilt. He wants Sansa to survive. And Sansa has no agency in any of her choices and sandor is the first choice she's ever had any agency in and she has these like bad dreams of him when she's in the veil she dreams of him in her marriage bed dreams of him kissing her and she thinks all the time about how he kissed her at the blackwater but he didn't that we know of like we read it originally and he didn't and it's just such like a and then he travels with her sister her whole book like if Arya thought she could get rid of her sister bond and if Sandor thought he could get rid of his son's bond they got fucked into traveling together for a book and half the time they just talk about Sansa half the time you say there's like so I don't want to talk about your sister but like hey have you thought about your sister lately and she's just like what the fuck like what does your sister Who ever talk you? about your sister ever talk about me I haven't seen my sister in a year but does she ever talk about me though <laughs> it's pretty much and yeah they're both really reluctant I mean, the Arya Sandor relationship is great too in that regard that they're just kind of talking around each other the entire time because they can't bear to actually agree that they have anything in common. And one of the things they have in common is this intense, difficult relationship with Sansa. Um, and, you know, I've always, part, part of me has always wanted Sandor to be there when Arya and Sansa reunite. Like, if there's, oh, if there's a too. third character I would want to be on scene for that moment, it would be Sandor Clegane. Uh, 
And then, of course, especially with Arya and Sandra regarding them, we have that quote, you know where I'm about to go. Are you, like, feeling it? Because I'm about to get there. Uh, she watches Sandor about to die, and she thinks how pathetic he is the entire time. And he's reduced to tears, to begging, to sobbing, and he says, and the little bird, your pretty sister, I stood there in my white cloak and let them beat her. I took the bloody song. She never gave it. I meant to take her, too. I should have. I should have fucked her bloody and ripped her heart out before leaving her for that dwarf. <laughs> yeah, man, that quote is just like, it's like Heavy. a buffet of emotions. It's like, man, that is like the best and worst of humanity right there in a single paragraph. And you know what? The show, for once, I don't always agree with their characterizations or things, but they said something that I think could have been added to that paragraph, which was maybe then I would have had one last happy memory. And yeah. the second Sandor said that in the show, I was like, bro, no, bro. No. And that's true. And that's very true. Uh, and that's the other thing about Sandor Clegane, where he, he reminds me of Aaron Greyjoy in this respect, where because they're so screwed up and because they've so aged inside and their brothers and their older brothers abuse them, people forget how young they are. Like, yeah. I've often seen Aaron depicted in, like, fan art and in essays as someone who's, like, in his 40s or 50s. He's, like, 28. Like, that's how old he is. Because he was, that's uh, how Sandor you know, 13. is, Yeah. Like, that's, and that's, so they are, they, they act older than they are. Because they want to be tough and they want to have these defense mechanisms up because of what their older brothers did to them. But they're still kids if you really break down who they are inside that's the other thing is like yeah they act younger but like at the same time no they don't they act their age it's just they've never been allowed to act their age that's an excellent uh, point true they had to grow up so quickly and they were in cultures i mean they were in such horrible environments pike and the clegane keep can you imagine two worst places to grow up sandor then clegane grew up knowing that like as soon as his brother left and kept coming back but his sister died and his dad died he knew he was next man like that's what sandra clegane knew he knew he had to leave that autumn grass because he was next well that's yeah and that's the thing they have in common that you have both in the clegane household and the Greyjoy household you have this one member who was just preying on the entire rest of the family who could you and be talking about in the Greyjoy house i don't know in, in, the, in the Greyjoy case you just you give that person magic and that's the difference you're on it's just it's like you're on this is like if you took Gregor and it's like, you know what, let's give you superpowers. Let's see how that goes. I mean, but that happened to Gregor too when you that's think true. about it. So Gregor ends up as Robert Strong. Really and interesting it, parallel, honestly, what you just brought up. So And if I might seize upon that as a transition into my personal number one chip. So bringing up Cersei and Robert Strong. Excellent introduction to my primary ship, my number one choice, my dream companionship, the two that belong together. And that, of course, is Cersei Lannister and Victorian Greyjoy. Take it away, Emmett. Take it away. I'm just going to start with this quote from Cersei's second dance with dragons chapter when she first encounters Robert Strong. The queen felt cold steel slide beneath her. 
a pair of great armored arms lifting her off the ground, lifting her up into the air as easily as she had lifted Joffrey when he was still a babe. A giant, thought Cersei, dizzy as he carried her with great strides towards the gatehouse. She had heard the giant could still be found in the godless wild beyond the wall. That is just a tale. Am I dreaming? No. Snavier was real. Eight feet tall or maybe taller. With legs as thick around as trees, he had a chest worthy of a plow horse and shoulders that would not disgrace an ox. So yeah, Cersei's type basically is Victorian. She wants this giant dude that she can order around and kill her enemies. That's what Cersei needs in her life. I know that Cersei Euron is a ship that exists, especially since the show made it kind of a thing. But no. No, that makes no sense. They're both way way too dominant they would not be able to make room for each other the dynamic would make no sense cersei victorian makes perfect sense cersei needs someone to tell what to do victorian needs someone to tell him what to do i can just i can just imagine in my head cersei like pointing victorian at the tyrells and going chop and then he would have his axe in hand and just be cutting them in half just on behalf of his mistress within 45 seconds of the two of these people meeting she would have him just wrapped around her little finger. It's, it's just this horrible, perfect trash ship that will, of course, never happen in the narrative, never could possibly happen in the narrative. But part of me wants it because of how much sheer, ridiculous, petty damage they could cause. Because ultimately, Cersei and Victorian are, are ridiculously shallow people who have been allowed far too much power. And watching the damage they could do together would just be so much fun. It speaks to the truly perverse side of my heart, also known as the entirety of my heart. And that's why they're my number one. At you me. know, I don't think I can knock that, honestly. Um, Boom. You spoke from the heart, from the dick, from the balls, I feel like even a little. Like, I don't... A I little bit, man. Cersei would be on top the entire time. You can imagine that pretty clearly. No, I actually am seeing it very vividly right now in my brain hole. I can imagine her, like, thinking about how stupid he is all the time, too. So that's kind of a plus. That's true. That's true. And she no, she would have utter contempt for him, but he would be very useful in bed. And she wouldn't have to have the pretenses that she had with Lancel of looking like Jamie or Tyena being on her side. Like, it would just... He would just be a complete useful tool for her. And that's what Cersei needs because she keeps convincing him, trying to convince herself she wants love or anything like it, but she really doesn't. What she wants is a tool and a tool with a dick attached to it. So that's, and that's Victorian. Again, okay. if you take Robert Strong and you give him a ship and an arm made of fire and roughly 10% more sentience, that's basically Victorian. Do you think Robert Strong fucked before he was Robert? Like, do you think Gregor fucked besides, like, the bitches he raped? I don't think Gregor Clegane ever had consensual sex once in his entire life, no. Me either. Cool. I was just curious. Um... <laughs> that that would be my bet. I mean... No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet you on that. Like, I bet that I agree. I bet Gregor started with rape and ended with rape and was 100% rape in the interim. Yikes, dude, that's gross. I know, right? Imagine, imagine Gregor and Ramsey swapping stories over the over the table. They mm -mm, no more. Nope, gross. No, just hope for them to kill each other. But anyway, yeah. So that's that's for me. That's what for me. What Cersei Victorian comes from. 
because I feel in that Cersei, in that I feel there's a certain in that when Cersei sees Robert Strong and goes, "Yes, oh yes," there's a certain kind of intense, weird psychological sexual identification there, especially with his name being Robert and the way she's tried to like imitate Robert sexually with Tyena. There's this weird thing in Cersei's head where she wants that kind of. She wants Robert back, but she wants to control him this time. And like, I feel that's what Victorian would offer her. And I think that's something sexually Cersei desires deep down <laughs> where she can't really acknowledge it. Oh, no, I 100% agree with you on that. That's a very good glimpse, what you just grabbed, because like, she really does. She, it's like a controllable zombie strong dude. I don't. And that's like that's what Makuro has in Victorian. Makuro just turned Victorian into a controllable zombie C-list Marvel villain, and that's all that that's all that Cersei needs. You can imagine Kyburn just doing. I mean, Kyburn and Makuro are just doing the same thing on different continents. You could just just swap Victorian in for Robert Strong, and just no one would know the difference. Mm, side note: I do want to put in the uh, a ship that closed the door podcast mentioned today, uh, Kai Sel. Pyburn. Oh, God. The tension is there, friend. Sure, sure. I could see them fucking on the small council meeting, arguing after everyone else has left long into the night. You could. I mean, you could. Yeah. You you brought this up, lady. You don't get to just drop me into the <laughs> middle of this and then back away. You're in this with me now. You understand? Yes, sir. I mean, I'm. I mean, we're pie winning together, right? There's also a thing. Because all I do is pie win, win, win. Get out. I'll go. This is no. fine. Exactly. But for me, for me, the reason I ship Cersei and Victoria, and I will, I will close my ship with this, is that I love the two characters for the same reason, which is that it's so much fun to watch them fail. Like, that's the fun yeah. of both Cersei Lannister and Victorian Greyjoy. So you look at them and go, you idiots do you really not realize that you are destroying yourselves and trusting the worst possible people and they think they're winning and they think they're awesome but they're ridiculous and i i have a i like those characters in general that's just a thing i enjoy across stories and across mediums is characters that you are supposed to like laugh at for how f ridiculous and foolish their ambitions are until they collapse that's just the thing that appeals to my perversity. And both Cersei and Victorian fit that mold. So I would love to watch them combine their forces and burn together. I would I would love to watch Jamie kill Cersei and Euron kill Victorian at the same time in the same room. That is my fondest heart's desire. Arrange this for me, please. Okay, for Valentine's well, Day. Um, this is a really tall order. As your girlfriend of like maybe close to like how many i don't know math a while i don't feel like <laughs> Jeez. your face right now <laughs> what i'm saying is so i feel like i'm glad that you had that crack ship though in a way because i feel like it opens up what we're about to go into as the number one this is the final this is you know babe you know ladies and gentlemen we have reached our destination <laughs> I don't mean for this to be my thing. It's my thing. This is, if you've ever thought you've had the softest ship in the, first off, wait a second. I'd like to chat about how this wasn't on your ships. 
I almost got away with it, guys. I was wondering this entire time when she was going to bring this up. I thought about it for like an hour. I'm not going to lie to you. I was sitting here and I was like, ooh, I got to bring it up. I got to say well, it right before I do it. Because what was I going to say? Like, also, let's turn it over to Chloe so she can talk far more eloquently about this topic. Okay, A, eloquently, that's dragging it out. B, smart. <laughs> Good call. With, with, with the Asha Carl ship, I knew we could have a conversation about a ship we both held. With Helen and Ashara, is. this is your masterpiece, and you need to be the one to discuss it. So I yield the floor to you. I guess I intro it with a quote from one of my favorite chapters okay. of all time. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you can guess what chapter it is. I have no idea what this could possibly be. I wonder if it couldn't be a branch chapter. Yeah. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if it's his second chapter in Storm of Swords. The Cranach man saw a maid with laughing purple eyes dance with a white sword, a red snake, the Lord of Griffins, and lastly with the quiet wolf. But only after the wild wolf spoke to her on behalf of a brother too shy to leave his bench. Bran to the Storm of Swords. First, we have to talk about how Ashara Dane is put on a pedestal by shitty men all over the books for, like, the whole books. All they do, men and women are just like, Ashara Dane this, Ashara Dane that, and Ashara Dane's like, that's not what I did, bitch. She's entirely imposed upon as a character who belongs to the backstory. She just is, is distorted projected and twisted upon. through other people's narratives, projected upon exactly correct. Lots of projection. Uh, Barristan projects on her. Cersei uses and projects her. She uses her as a stepping stone to get to Ned. She thinks that's like the way to do it. She's like, oh, that's how I'm going to get to Ned is that chick he once fucked. We don't know if he fucked her or not, but she thinks it. Everyone thinks it. Westeros thinks it. Harwin thinks it. Uh, everyone thinks uh, Ned Dane thinks it. Like, everyone thinks it. But guess who has no say in her story? The lady herself. Exactly. Ashara Dane with the laughing purple eyes not haunting because guess what you guys perspective is really important and perspective in a song of ice and fire is a huge theme that i really love and tag on to and ashara dane her story is told through everyone else's perspectives uh especially how she's seen when howlin sees her with laughing eyes that's a huge story jump anyone that has followed me for a while on the internets anywhere knows that i love the crack theory, quote unquote, of Ashara and Howland are in the neck making out right now. Like they had Mira and Jojen. They're having a good life. Uh, it makes sense on so many thematic levels. It makes sense on a level of uh, the Cranog men versus the Danes, the Great Empire of the Dawn, and the whole magical being moment. That's like a really big kind of thing, in my opinion. Like I think that's a big moment that those two intersect i think finding that out i think finding those answers together that's big um ashara dane has so much information out there she it keeps getting talked about that like it's not okay that like she's just mentioned through other dudes's point of views uh and i think barristan i think we hear a lot about from barristan about like all these things in the past and every single time he turns out kind of wrong in a way like Barrison's very not, true. Yeah, he's not a remarkably poignant point of view. Like he's not. You don't look to him for truths. So exactly. That's a good point. Well said. And then in a dance with dragons in the discarded night, he even says 
he has this big moment and it's such an ironic like shut up Barristan moment where he's thinking about Daenerys and he's thinking about Quentin and Daenerys Targaryen whatever else she might be was still a young girl as she herself would claim when it pleased her to play the innocent like all good queens she put her people first else she would have never have wed his odd Zolarak but the girl in her still yearned for poetry passion and laughter she wants fire and Dorne sent her mud you could make a poultice out of mud to cool a fever you could plant seeds in mud and grow a crop to feed your children mud would nourish you where fire would only consume you but fools and children and young girls would choose fire every time dance of dragons the discarded knight listen barristan do tell barristan is just like the most incel motherfucker in the world like he you're never gonna get the girl you chose the king's guard the girl's dead hashtag quote unquote <clears throat> and the biggest irony is between barristan thinking young girls want fire they don't want mud mud could nourish i'm mud ashara choosing Helen would be choosing mud man Indeed, it would be a direct refutation to Barristan's self-pitying monologue. I do love that about it. That's a perfect image, especially how often mud is associated with the crowning men as a slur. And to have a shard choose it is just a great refutation of that. Absolutely, especially when like she's already been subjected to like short little fucking Dornish men. She's had the swathy Dornish. She's had little like five foot six men with dark, dark hair and dark skin just like trying to hit on her all the time like she lives there she gets it you know she's got these look one thing is like dudes are bad y'all are the worst like guys are the worst we get that but like short men dudes that are short are worse than dudes okay like that's like a that's a broad wow we throw in some shade tonight ladies and gentlemen on a scale i don't disagree you must be this tall to ride is what i'm saying Oh my. This is entirely reasonable, folks. That's it though, man. Like Hashara is just real pure and it's kind of like the idea of like maybe Hashara ain't got to have agency in the end after all. Maybe she didn't fuck Brandon. Maybe she didn't fuck Ned. Maybe she ended up going for Holland Reed who's this little Cranog man who spent like four years off of school. He He took a vocational journey off of school to just like look at weirwoods and like get visions and just like chill bro and like <laughs> maybe ashara found him and he found her and i don't know dude howlin and ashara equaling mira and jojen is just like a natural pure thought for me now like i don't concern it it, it helps me sleep at night knowing that ashara got to be with him instead of just like suffering and you got Jojen's skills and the fact that his eyes changed color and that gray water is on the move and his isolated doesn't have a maester oh. yet. Yeah. All this setup that could easily yeah. allow for such a thing. I may have read your stuff. <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> Worse than that is like, hey, do you ever think about Okay, brace yourself. Are you ready? Take a drink. How's your how many whiskeys are you in? Where are you? I've had all of them. You drank all of them, babe? One by one, in front of the camera, no less. Where was I? Um, I should have died with you. <laughs> <See ya. laughs> I should have been drunk with him. 
I don't remember what I was going to say because I got really excited about you drinking. Oh, babe. You were going to say something about Howlin' in the Shore? Something I was not ready to hear? Something pure? Uh, all I know is that, like, I meant what I'm saying about Hashara is that in a world where we know George isn't the most progressive, he does, he isn't like some sexual hero when it comes to progression for people who are marginalized, for like gay people, for queer people, for people who don't subscribe to the normal lord and lady marriage. He's not like this progressive man who sits there thinking this would be the most kinkiest queer thing I could do. Like He's not like that. People tend to make it out for that, but like Shara is a nice thematically foreshadowed ship that look, I've come to terms with if it's not canon. I have. I, I'll die. Is what I'm telling you. I'll die. But I could accept it if it's not canon. I can figure it out. But I do think that it holds the most weight in an Ashara Dane theory as far as she's off the screen, he's off the screen. They both have all these secrets. No one else knows. Guess what? They're together. Uh, there's beautiful history between, in a way, it's just very parallel between the Cranogs and the Great Empire of the Dawn. They have all these different things that are similar to each other. It's just thematically, mythically, all of it, it's beautiful. Um, and it's so subtle that people deign to forget it. Ha! Deign ah, to forget it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'll be here all night. Uh, but again, people think that, you know, young girls would choose fire and Ashara Dane who suffered so much in the Relva Ashara Dane who suffered so much in the rebellion she lost her family and friends and she had to serve people that she didn't really feel a connection to and she was alone in a viper's pit in a lion's pit in a dragon's pit she was alone in King's Landing and she came home and who knows what actually happened did ashara have sex did she get pregnant no one knows did she exist did she kill herself did she not no one knows uh and she certainly hasn't ever had the shot for it and i pray that we get the glimpse of her finally getting her shot whether she's live whether the story unravels i just hope ashara dane gets a little more time than 11 mentions in text named or non-named i hope that she gets at least 20 mentions in the end, at least, that she's literally just happy in the bogs of Greywater Watch. No maesters to watch her and report to the Citadel. No masters at arms. Dead knights in the bogs, waiting for her children to come home, waiting for Mira to come home, waiting to hug Mira and tell her that she was so brave, that she did everything she could have, and that she watched her brother, watched over him as much as she could have, and how proud Ashara is of Mira Reed. Bless your heart, man. That was beautifully said. Thanks. It hurts real bad, so. I know. <laughs> that, that's the postscript, right? Drunk, a song of ice and fire. It hurts real bad. It does. I know it's silly, but I'm so glad you were on me tonight. We got to talk about all of the pain. Uh, some all of it. Not ships. even all no, not even all. We didn't even if, we didn't talk about like Jane Poole. We didn't talk about anyone. Dude, we got like a glimpse. We should do this again because we got a glimpse into the feet. Like maybe like a tenth of sadness. That's true. We should just have a sadness focused episode sometime. That sounds perfect. 
I'm in. I I'm in for part it. two of sadness. I, I will be calling you. I know you, so I'll be calling you. I don't believe I could escape even if I wanted to. I know. Man, I don't know. Uh, any? What do you have? Uh, anything you've thought of in the last bit to come up with to end with? Uh, any relationshipy? Do you have any like real good quotes? Do you have some artistic quotes? Are you like sitting there like, oh, love in a song of ice and fire is like blank, and here's a quote. <laughs> well, that's a lot of pressure. No, I think. Martin isn't necessarily the best with sex scenes. Some of his romantic relationships are stiff, but I think he does best with relationships that feel like they are oases within a larger universe. Eyes inside the storm. Those are Martin's best romantic relationships. The ones that feel like they're little fragile bubbles and you're investing yourself in them before they pop. And I think he writes that really well. I will say that much. No, I follow that, especially Ariane and Damon, especially Carl and Asha. Yep. Um, that reminds Damn, me a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, John and Egret, even Cat and Ned to an extent. True. That's a, by the time we meet them, it's already about to pop. It's it's designed for sadness in that way, but a beautiful poetic sadness nonetheless. Love in a song of ice and fire is so different than love in the real world. It's all sadder. It's all more traumatic. God, me and poor Quentin, we covered a lot of love tonight. I'm feeling. Are you feeling a lot of love? How you feeling, buddy? And we did we we did a lot of loved. A lot of love crafting, if you will. Some love, love crafting. space craft. Because you see... Would you say it's HP love crafting? I'll go. I'll just go. I'll, I'll go away. No, you should stay. Okay. It was fun. Uh, I think that's it. I don't... Any closing remarks? Sans Hans Cannon, so is Hashara. I don't... We are correct and will always be correct. End Man, I like the way you think. I do like the way you think. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. A uh, big thank you to poor Quentin, to Emmett Booth, for uh, hanging out with us tonight. Just getting drunk. Heck, he drank six shots of honey whiskey, you guys. Six big, like, were they four ounces? Um, 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 Find out. I need to know for science. Uh, for science is facts. I don't know. They're not telling me. Two to four. I'm gonna, yeah. I would, I would guess somewhere in between those. Sufficient to be belligerent, madame. That's how much I, I would drink. say, like, about a pound. You drink, like, a little over a pound of booze. Good job. Poor and I weigh so few pounds Good to thing. begin with. Oh, heck, you're mm. like bird bones. Yeah, you, uh... You hung out with us for the long haul, then. I'm pretty impressed. Thank you. Thank you, Emmett Booth. Um... I'm just Big Walter Frey. I'm a tiny little ambitious sociopath. Aw, but you're our tiny little ambitious sociopath. I'm Precisely. Mm-hmm. Precisely. <laughs> That's some drunk ace-wife shit. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire. This has been so fun. Heck, thank you, poor Quentin Emmett Booth, for joining us tonight. Uh, make sure, if you haven't, when this is airing, checked out, please check out Emmett's second part of Theon, uh, A Dance of Dragons Theon. He's doing an amazing series over on his Tumblr at poorquentin.tumblr.com. It's wonderful. Check out Not a Cast. Uh, Brandon B. Fish and Poor Quentin have joined together to make a beautiful, epic podcast. Uh, really great every week. It's a reread podcast going through chapter by chapter. Their Catalan chapter was amazing. Their Daenerys chapter is sure to be wonderful. I can't wait to see what they do with it. Uh, Emmett, say goodbye to us. For the night. 
Good night and good luck. <laughs> good night, you guys. This has been Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, good luck. May the odds be ever in your favor, you guys. Happy uh, liver beating.